bumper, possibly two-part edition of the Empire Podcast this week. How do we know that spring is here? Because Bloom is everywhere. Or Orlando Bloom, that is, star of Retaliation. And we speak to the one-man colossus who's dominating the Oscar season with both Soul and One Night in Miami, Kemp Powers. Plus making it the best hat-trick since Peter Crouch's right foot, head, left foot belter against Arsenal. Francis Lee, director of Ammonite, also speaks to us. Blimey. All that, plus the usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast that didn't have any Easter eggs this year. And then we remembered that you can see R2-D2 and C-3PO on the walls of the Well of Souls in Raiders <laughs> of the Lost Ark. Oh, and also we got a Cadbury's cream egg one. You know one of those ones that has the two cream eggs in addition to the big egg? Oh. It's fantastic. Fantastic stuff. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to the Emperor Podcast. This week, I'm joined by just two colleagues of such lethal cunning. James Dyer has made his bed and he has decided to lie in it. And he has made it very, very clear, in no uncertain terms, which podcast he prefers, he has fucked off to do Pilot <gasps> instead of Empire. <gasps> so, James Dyer, Judas, <laughs> it's all very apt. It's all very, he's gone full Judas just in time for Easter. That's, oh, that's so lovely. Too that's soon. so lovely. Too soon. <laughs> too, too soon. Too soon. It's, it's been 2,000 years. years, Ellen. <laughs> Come on. Come on, I think it's okay. We should maybe make clear this is for this week, right? It's not like a permanent move, is it? Yeah, I don't know. Well, let's hope. I'm, I'm, I'm off a mind to make it permanent. If you oh. love Pilot so much, why don't you marry Pilot TV podcast? Mmm, mmm, smoochy, smoochy. Anyway, the two colleagues of such lethal cunning who have chosen to join me this week are our geek queen, Helen O'Hara. Hello. And the living manifestation of Baby Yoda. Ben Travis. Hello. I'm actually wearing my Baby Yoda shirt right now. I uh, insist on being a parody of myself. Let me see it. Hang on. He's on the back. Wait, let me turn around. Oh, my word. Oh, Baby Yoda. Yeah, that's yeah. nice. And uh, speaking of Easter eggs, my Easter treat this year is, mm-hmm. you know, M&S always do some kind of like Easter Star War. This mm-hmm. year, it's a Stormtrooper <laughs> helmet. Ooh. Really, Stormtrooper. You uh, did say Stormtrooper, yes. <laughs> Stormtrooper. Uh, no, Are you storm- having a stroke? <laughs> I, I am. Please send help. Uh, no, it's a Stormtrooper helmet. Um, last year it was an R2-D2. This time it's an edible Stormtrooper. And you don't have to feel bad about eating them because they're the bad guys. And it was always a bit of a shame to kind of pick off bits of R2-D2 piece by piece and <laughs> wow. see them slowly wither away. Whereas I'm not going to feel that guilt this year. Wow. I don't I've, I don't think I've ever eaten a funny novelty egg. I'm very much into my... Serious eggs. It's Cadbury's, yeah. I'm straight up. I am, yeah, I'm absolutely 100% a, an egg purist. When it comes to, to Easter eggs, I want the big ones, the big chocolate ones, big hollow chocolate eggs. Do you guys do what I do? And I realised, look, after last week, when we were very, very self-indulgent with the listener question section, I want to be very much on point this week, but... <laughs> Um, especially because we've got three guests and it's probably going to be a two-parter. And, I, you know, I do not want to be editing this long into the bank holiday weekend. But do you guys do what I do, which is I get my eggs, mm-hmm. you put them in the fridge. What? Right? Yeah, put them in the fridge. Everyone at home, this is going to be the crazy sweep in the nation. Put your egg in the fridge, a couple of hours, get it nice and cold, nice and cold. Take your egg out of the fridge, bring it to a worktop, kitchen bench will do, or a kitchen table. Lift the egg, still in its foil wrapping, high above your head, 
and just drop that motherfucker. And it smashes all over the place and into beautifully edible chunks of chocolate. It is the most gratifying sensation. But doesn't don't you lose some chocolate? I mean, if it's not properly wrapped and the foil isn't sealed, you no, risk it's... losing chocolate, which is not a risk I'm willing to take. No, that's I... a terrible risk. Leave no man behind. You know my <laughs> my policy on this. I will I will hoover that chocolate up. I'm like an anteater. I I probe with my tongue around the uh, oh, no. the, 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 the surface of the workbench, <laughs> and you know it, I, I've evolved over the last few decades <laughs> that I can just I can find the chocolate with the, with the with the tip of my tongue. It's 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 quite something. It really is. I'll upload it to OnlyFans later on. Uh, but you should do that. It's really really great. It's so satisfying. It's the most satisfying noise this side of Indiana Jones punching a Nazi. It's so good. Plus you can eat it where you can't eat a Nazi. You definitely shouldn't. Um yeah. but you can try. <laughs> Last year I tried to do like a like a Hollywood hard man thing and tried to crack an Easter egg on my forehead and A <laughs> it didn't work. <laughs> Me, it really hurt. You, I've never felt less like Jason Statham in my entire life. <laughs> Why not just, I don't know, break the egg with your hands? Like we we have hands, what? you know, and opposable you use your thumbs, hands? guys. That's it's, like a baby's toy. I just, I just think they're useful. Oh. Why would you do that? Well, we can talk about, you know, tool usage uh, by mammals when pardon? we get into um, some of the films this week, I guess. I tell you what, Godzilla and or Kong would drop that egg from a great height and they would love it. But Godzilla wouldn't be able to pick it up. <laughs> Godzilla, Godzilla has tiny, pick it up. He's got tiny, tiny arms. He, could, he would be crouching down. He wouldn't be able to get it. And that's when Kong would come in and just whack him. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I'd say spoilers here for Godzilla versus Kong, but these are absolutely not. So don't worry, everybody. Yes, yes. I wonder how all the movie characters in the films we're reviewing this week would handle their Easter eggs. <laughs> But anyway, enough of this self-indulgent nonsense. Uh, this is a fairly lengthy podcast this week, folks, because of the three interviews. Uh, and so, to the delight of my colleagues of such lethal cunning, and mainly because there's only three of us this week, the three-fact structure is being rested for Ooh. one week. Rested Yay. for one week. But I will say this, Ben did have a fact. I had a fact. You know, and it, ben, it, it, would, oh, uh, do I get to fact. do my fact? His, go on, okay. do the fact. As, as ever, long as it's quick. Any but then he's decent using fact. Up his fact. But yeah, then, but he might not be on for a, you know, a couple of weeks in the rotation, so you know. Uh, just, have I wronged you like James has? I haven't. I, I, I'll promise you, I haven't been on the Pilot TV podcast. Don't worry. But you have been on the Disney Versity podcast. I have, which is where I've got my fact from as well. Anytime I have like an actually <laughs> decent fact, is something my friend Sam has told me on the Disney Versity podcast, and that is the case with this week's one. So yeah, my All fact right. would have been that the most recent episode we did was on Cinderella. And it blew my mind that uh, at the point they made it, the studio had come out from the wartime years. They'd been doing these little package features to try and like scrape enough money to keep the studio going. Cinderella was like the big comeback. But when they were making it, they still didn't have like that much money to play with. And so they shot the whole thing in live action on like fairly bare sets, but they shot the whole thing and then kind of animated over it effectively to save a lot of costs and in terms of like setting out the stages and what their angles were going to be there is footage out there there are pictures out there of them filming live action cinderella mm. in order to animate it which i thought was really cool, cool. that is cool so who was playing cinderella 
I didn't. I don't know that much, Chris. I, I don't even know if we mentioned Ugh. it on the podcast. But people, you know, just stand-in people. <laughs> this is the level of depth wow. that you get on the Disney Versity <laughs> podcast. Oh my every god! Every fortnight. <laughs> Sounds like a real must-listen, Ben. Tell it, us more. <laughs> oh dear. Oh yes, good stuff. Good stuff. Ben's half-assed Disney facts. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that is basically what... Well, no, they're not even my Disney facts. That's the thing. They're Sam Summers' Disney facts. Um, and he, he doesn't half-ass it. He does the real deal. And I just sit, right. sit there and go, huh? Ooh. Ooh. Yeah, okay. It's a really good yeah. podcast, actually, I have to say. Thanks, Helen. Oh, dole you, you. Uh, Helen, you, you didn't have a fact this week, well, did you? Well, I had a, um, a sort of fact there. It's not like a full fact. Um, but I was listening to another podcast. What, I was it's semi-skimmed? Yay. I was listening to Brett Goldstein's Movies to be Buried With, and he has a very good episode with uh, Yvette Nicole Broughton. And she talks about, obviously, one of our favourite things, Avengers. And she went to do her cameo, because obviously she'd worked with the Russos on Community, they're friends, they invited her in, happy days. So she gets a couple of days off work, she, she heads over to Atlanta to shoot her scenes. And all of her swag, like all of her contracts, all of her paperwork, everything that she has said Infinity War. So then she goes and sees Infinity War and she's not in the movie. And she thinks, well, you know, if these things happen, you get left on the cutting room floor, so be it. You know, disappointed, but, you know, unbowed. Um, and she gets over it because, you know, you know, when Endgame is coming out the following year, like she and her her friends are all excited. They're super looking forward to seeing it. She apparently has a WhatsApp group called Blurds, which is Black Nerds. And so her Blurds group all go together to see Endgame kind of opening night. And they're sitting watching it. And then there's the bit where they go to the 70s. And she's like, wait, my bit was in the 70s. And then they start <laughs> heading towards a, a lift. And she's like, wait, I was in a lift. <laughs> and then basically their entire row of all this all this little group of people just lose their minds when she comes on screen because she thought she was cut out. I just thought that was charming. It's not so much a fact as a, you know, half an anecdote belonging to someone else, but I just thought it was lovely. Wow. Yeah. It was the sort of two fact no structure this week rather <laughs> yeah, than the exactly. three three fact structure. <laughs> Helen and Ben listen to podcasts and <laughs> and kind of semi remembers something that was on the podcast at the same time. Okay, I mean that's all you get, really. Yeah, yeah. this this is true. Uh, so this week's winner is James. Well done, James. <laughs> he will no. be delighted. But anyway, it's time now for our first guest this week in this packed bumper podcast, and it is Kemp Powers. Uh, now, Kemp has been on the podcast of sorts before. He featured on our Soul Spoiler Special and on the Soul Interview Special that I did earlier on last year, or later on last year, more accurately. Uh, he is the co-director and co-writer of that Disney Pixar Marvel, but he is having quite the time of it as well because he is also the writer, now the Academy Award nominated writer of One Night in Miami, the Regina King film that he adapted from his own play. But he has led a fascinating life. Uh, he is a journalist turned filmmaker, so there's hope for us yet. And uh, when the opportunity arose to speak to him recently to tie in with the release of Soul on DVD and Blu-ray, I jumped at the chance to spend some time chatting to Kemp Powers. Always a blast talking to Kemp. And here you go. Here's me talking to Kemp Powers about all manner of things. Enjoy. 
Delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast by the co-writer and co-director of Soul and the writer of One Night at Miami. It's one guy. <laughs> I've described two films, a bunch of jobs, one guy, Kemp Powers. How are you, sir? I'm good. Thanks for having me. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. You must be exhausted. I really am, man. I really am. <laughs> <I'm>, uh, <laughs> it's not just the, I mean, well, you know, it, it, time is moving on and, and the reality is that like, you know, we finished both these films months ago and I'm kind of busy on other stuff. So yeah, it, it's, it's pretty, it's, pre, it's quite a, it's quite a juggling act, but, um, but uh, fortunately I'm a fast learner, so I think I'm doing okay on, on everything. <laughs> Indeed, because, you know, obviously we're, we're here to talk about your incredible few months, your incredible year as well, but you must be looking to the future also. So you have been, you are working on other stuff, you have been, you've got other things on the fire? Yes, I am. I'm, I'm actually quite busy um, both writing um, and directing something else. Can you say anything about that at this point or is it all very much under wraps? It's it's all pretty under wraps, unfortunately, but you know, that's probably for the best. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one one doesn't want to get ahead of themselves when there's so much more work that needs to be done. This is true. This is true. But when I said uh, you know, were you exhausted at the beginning? Because it has been it has been a, a frenetic few months, I guess, for you. You had to finish two movies, essentially, in in lockdown in the COVID era. Then they both come out within a few weeks of each other, really, as well. And then you're thrust into award season whilst working on something else at the same time. How have you managed to, A, retain your sanity and, uh, and B, just retain some sense of humanity all through that? Well, I mean, that the, the, the quote unquote problem of being thrust into award season is a good problem to have. I, honestly, I'm, I'm really still kind of taken aback and, and really humbled just by the fact that these both these films connected, um, honestly, beyond my wildest expectations in, in, in both cases. Um, one of the good things, I guess, about this whole Zoom um, COVID time we're living in is that I'm not running all over the planet you know, that all the things we're doing, including this conversation we're having now are, are all from, I'm all in the, I'm in the same place. So, so if anything, I, I need to figure out a way to move about a little bit more during the average day, because I've been sedentary so much that I just need a little bit more exercise. Um, but, but I mean, yeah, this, these are these, this, this is like the epitome of first world problems we're talking about here. So I've got, I got nothing to complain about. But the, but the idea of, of, uh, and by the way, I've, I've been sedentary for the last year as well. As well, I have, I have swelled. Camp, let me tell you, in the last year or so. Oh man, let me. I, I put on a suit. I had got my first bespoke suit made a year ago, right. and I dared try to put it on for for the Golden Globes. Um, Let's just say it's good that we only they only the camera only had from the waist and above because like all the buttons weren't buttoned like it just doesn't fit. I, I like it looks like um the old the yeah it was like the old Chris Farley um David Spade comedy um Tommy Boy like fat guy in a little coat like that was me fat guy in a little coat. Oh man. <laughs> there is an image. There is an image. But uh but listen, soon we'll be hopefully getting vaccines to be able to fly around the world because I imagine Seoul was going to be at the London Film Festival. And given London's importance in the One Night in Miami story, is this, was this a city that you were desperate, especially to 
to come to? Yeah, I mean, Soul and One Night in Miami were both supposed to be in London. They were both in the London Film Festival. So, and and really for me, I mean, London has been, I mean, it's not much of a stretch to call it a second home for me um, since 2015. I mean, before COVID hit, I was there at least four or five times a year um, just because so many of my friends and collaborators are, are all based there. Um, and, and obviously it was the London production of One Night in Miami at the Dunmar Warehouse that was really kind of like the, the, the high profile production that, that demonstrated the, the potential of this story. It was, it was soon after that um, that, that I started working on adapting, the, this, adapting it into a film. So, um, you know, it's, uh, it's actually been excruciating not having been there, um, for the past year, because again, so much of, uh, so much of my inspiration comes from my friends and collaborators who are, who are based there. And I just, just a group of folks I like, I like being around from Kwame Koyarma, who's the artistic director, um, at the Young Vic to some of my favorite actors, including Arenzi Kinney, um, David Ajala, um, who's in Star Trek Discovery now, uh, Shope Derizu, who I think just got nominated for a, a BAFTA Emerging Artist Award, as well as Kingsley Benadir, mm-hmm. our, our current, like, I, I mean, my, my, my London crew, um, you know, J- young Josh Williams, Dwayne Walcott, um, just, just like such a great, uh, I mean, what's the expression you guys use? They're my mates. <laughs> so um i yeah i you know my you know mike brett steve jameson a couple of buddies of mine who are filmmakers documentary filmmakers who you know we've been exploring like yeah a lot a lot of my the, the folks I'm, I'm really tight with and some of my tightest collaborators are all there and how did the uh, the Delmar warehouse experience did it did it shape one night at miami did it change Anything the, about the play? I, it was the last time I did revisions on the play. Like, you know, you often, when you do a production of a play, you don't publish it until several productions in. And it was only like after doing the Dunmar production that I was like, okay, this is the play. The play is not going to change anymore. I'm not going to do any more revisions or rewrite it. This is what it is. And that's actually the the one and only time that that I that I published it. So So the published, it's funny, if you want a print copy of the play, you have to get it from, I guess now Methune Drama. Like that's, it's only published in the UK. It's actually not even published in the US. So that's another element of it is that, you know, just I kind of got welcomed into that theater community um, in a way that I had not been here at home because I'm from New York. I'm born and raised New Yorker, but um, none of my plays have ever been produced there. So, yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, yeah. Still, I mean, I've written, you know, four, four plays and counting and, and including One Night in Miami. It's none, nothing has been produced um, in New York. Why is that? Is it particularly difficult to break in? Oh, it's just different. It's just a different environment. Um, yeah. And I, I guess up to this point, no one's liked my work enough to want to do it. <laughs> I, I don't know. You have to, you're asking the wrong guy. I'm not the producer, but, um, yeah. but yeah, no, no producers wanted to, to do it as of yet. But again, I'm not complaining. I mean, London, like I said, it's a community that kind of welcomed me with open arms. Um, and so, again, I, I look forward to finally getting vaccinated and hopefully being able to travel again by the hopefully by the summer. I mean, I'm still kind of waiting to figure out when what group I'm in to to actually get vaccinated mm. um, and so that I can, you know, get back over there after 
the Dalmar Warehouse, as you say, you, you began to to work on on adapting One Night in Miami into a screenplay, and you were working on that and Soul at pretty much the same time, is my understanding. Not, not initially. I mean, I finished the I finished the the draft of the script like a few days before my first day at Pixar. Um, that was in, in like July or August, um, twenty eighteen. So, and keep in mind when I went into Pixar to work on Soul. I had no intention, no, no expectation of being made co-director and that, that turning into years of my life. So I figured I'm going to do my best and, and hopefully, you know, deliver on as a screenwriter on Soul. And then when I'm done with that, hopefully by then, One Night in Miami will have a director and then go back into developing on that. But my experience on Soul ended up being several years so that <laughs> it ended up overlapping in the tail end. Um, so, so, you know, when, of course, Regina King came on to, to direct One Night in Miami and the window for us to actually shoot that film was, and I was made an executive producer. So the window for us to shoot the film was basically January, February of, um, 20, um, of, of 2020, um, which was also when we were in the, in the midst of like the heaviest production on Soul. But thank goodness, you know, the folks at Pixar were understanding. They knew that was, you know, a dream, like a, a, a pet project of mine that I worked on for years. So they allowed me to, at least for a few weeks, kind of do a little bit of a back and forth where I was flying from Emeryville down to New Orleans, um, where, where we were shooting one night in Miami. So I was able to be present um, at both. Um, for but, but thankfully, the overlap was only a few weeks. Okay, because I, I had images in my head because uh, James Cameron famously wrote Aliens and Rambo First Blood Part 2 at the same time. He would write one during the night and one during the day. And Michael J. Fox, of course, filmed Back to the Future at the same time as shooting Family Ties. He would film Back to the Future all night and then Family Ties all day. And he didn't know which way was up by the, by the end of it. Yeah, uh, I mean, well, there was some writing overlap. And, and look, yeah. the, being on Soul and being a part of the, the lessons that I learned being a part of the Pixar writing process, I applied to revisions I did on One Night in Miami. Because mm. I did do a revision of the script over the course of the first year I was at Pixar, like on my nights uh, I'm in weekends. But again, I spread it out over a long period of time. So it wasn't ever that frenetic. I mean, it was frenetic enough just being in production on Soul. It wasn't like, oh, I'm leaving at five and then I'm going to sit up till midnight working on a script because that's actually not how my brain works. It's, it's kind of, it's really difficult for me to writing wise, jump from one project into another project in the same day. The way I usually break it up when I'm working on multiple things is different days for different projects. So in the case of working on One Night in Miami um, revisions, that would have been stuff that I would do on weekends because because of Pixar, you know, they, we might work long hours during the week, but, but you know, weekends and family time is, is pretty sacred. So I pretty much had weekends to, to myself. And I commuted back and forth um, from Emeryville to Los Angeles the whole time. So every weekend I was back in LA anyway, so I was in a different environment, which allowed me to be in a bit of a different frame of mind to be doing some writing on, on One Night in Miami on my weekends. All the way through this process, Kemp, as well, as you said at the beginning, you were kind of thrown into the into the deep end uh, a little bit with both these movies, with both tremendous experiences, one working with Regina King, an adaptation of your own play. That's an incredible experience. Another one being thrust into co-directing an animated movie at the biggest animation studio on the planet. 
all the way through, are you taking notes? Are you are you you know thinking okay, this is this is one stop film school right here. This is it. This, if I'm going to direct down the line, keep your eyes and ears open, Kemp. Is that is that what you're thinking? Well, my eyes and ears are always open. I'm, I mean, that's how I operate. I mean, I, I maybe it's because I used to be a journalist um, for 17 years. I always love knowing how the sausage is made. So, you know, walking into Pixar, which is a place that, to be perfectly honest, I knew little about. I mean, most people know little about it because it's it's so kind of like a closed bubble up there in Northern California. Um, but the way it's set up, it was almost kind of like, for me, art camp. Um, because understand Pixar always has six, seven films in development at the same time. And most of the screenwriters are people like me. They're, they're coming from someplace else to work on this specific Pixar film. So the screenwriters all kind of form a, we almost kind of form a little cabal. Um, you know, like we'll gather every now and then and play cards or something like that during the week. But a lot of the writers are not from the Bay area. They're just like me. They've, they've moved there to work on their respective Pixar film. So it has this strange kind of like, when I say camp, I don't mean to sound cavalier, Mm. but it feels like you're away from your life in a way that is, is unique. You know, when you're, and you're really thrust into this environment that makes films, even animated films, unlike anyone else, you know, like they have a, they have a proven system, a proven formula, but they're all, but, but part of that formula is searching for new original ideas and new ways of, of doing things. And so you, you really are just kind of, yeah, it's, it's a, I think it would be crazy not to have your eyes and ears open at all time because there's so much, and you're learning from some of the best people in the world at their jobs, like all up and down the line from, you know, not just the directors and other writers, and but you know production designers storyboard artists animators i mean so ultimately storytellers you're at the place with like some of the best storytellers on the planet are all there plus you never know who you're like going to just run into in the pixar atrium like it was it was funny because i first met ryan coogler um in the cafeteria at pixar and it was very and i was like well dude like what are you doing here and and he was like oh yeah i'm working on writing my my black panther movie and it turns out he just kind of was keeping an office space at Pixar to write. So over the course of my time there, you know, you, you run into like, you run into each other every month or so. And, and, and it's kind of this weird thing where you never know who you're going to bump into in the cafeteria. And it might be like other creative artists whose work, you know, that you're going like, what are you doing at Pixar? But for the Bay Area, it's kind of like ground zero of creativity. Kemp, uh, I'll let you go. But I have to say, as a former journalist turned successful screenwriter. Uh, I hear you can get people out. Uh, what's your secret? Can you, can you take me with you? Well, how, how do you, how do you do it? <laughs> Perseverance, man. It's really as simple as that. I mean, I, I, you're, you're, you're witnessing one of the highs. If, if you show people the lows, that would discourage 99% of people from even wanting to try. And trust me, the, the high might be high, but the lows, oh God, they're so, so low. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is true. But thank God you said perseverance rather than talent, because if you say talent, then I'm screwed. I'm I'm no, done. No. I mean, we we all do have talent to do different things, but there's no time I've ever thought that like I'm the world's most talented writer, director, anything. But when I'm passionate about a project or passionate about an idea, call it delusion. But I feel like there's no one better in the world to tell the story than me. 
And those are the projects that I really want to chase after and the projects that I want to do. When Pete kind of laid out what soul was and the story that he was trying to tell in that moment, I was said to myself in my own mind, oh my God, there's no better person in the world to help tell this story than me. And that might be delusional, but that's the kind of delusion you, I think you have to have when, when you're chasing stuff you really love. And on an inspirational note, I'm going to leave you to enjoy this very, very highest of highs. Kemp, it's been a pleasure as always. Thank you so much, man. Oh, of course. Anytime. Pleasure. Thank you. Okay, that was Kemp Powers. And Soul is out right now on DVD and Blu-ray. So rush the minute this podcast finishes. And once you've listened to Disneyversity, of course, and Films Be Buried with, with Brett Goldstein, uh, then rush out to your nearest shop, Break in because the shops still aren't open yet, and then just help yourself uh, to copies of Soul on DVD and Blu-ray. Um, no, um, as your lawyer, Chris. Um, no, no, okay. Um, no, wait. <laughs> apparently, apparently, you got to pay for it. There All right, go. sorry, sorry, folks. Go and pay for a copy of Soul on DVD and Blu-ray. Right. Time now for this week's listener question, and it comes from, well, frankly, a whole bunch of people, because I asked for questions yesterday, and a number of people seemed to zoom in on the same kind of topic, which was characters who come back from the dead slash or are resurrected. Can't imagine what was on their minds when they thought of that, uh, but here we go. Best mm. characters who have come back from the dead. Now, we could discuss, we could have like our own special three-hour Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast dedicated to this, <laughs> of course. So should we just get that out of the way real quick and just yeah. mention a whole bunch? On, only Uncle Ben stays dead. But maybe... Bangly bang. I too. <gasps> what? That's Spoilers! Right, Spoilers! There oh, are wow. a couple of characters who have stayed dead in the MCU so far. You know? Yeah? Yeah. I guess. Do you not think? I mean, yeah, but, you know, so far. I feel like it's more that they just haven't come back yet, rather than <laughs> they are definitely dead. Yeah. I mean, if we're reeling off MCU characters, Nick Fury, I feel, is the guy who's probably sort of... He dies and comes back like three times in The Winter Soldier. Well, okay. I'm, but Loki see, here's the thing, Ben. He doesn't die in The Winter Soldier. No, he he's he's on the just, brink. They make you think just he is, led though. to believe that he's dead because exactly. he, got a, he got a full Hydra scum. Yeah, and Steve technically wasn't dead, so he doesn't count. They thought Bucky was dead, but he wasn't actually dead. So, I mean, these aren't really resurrections so much as just misunderstandings, you know? It's like, oh, I lost your address. Clumsy misplacements. Oh, no. It's an administrative <laughs> error is what it is. That's what it exactly. is. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, Bucky is, wasn't killed. He just fell into a soft snowbank <laughs> and then lost his arm. He fell into somehow. a raging river where he lost his arm, which had obviously been, I don't know, hurt already probably. And then um, and then this, the super soldier serum kind of kept him going-ish, the same way it did with Cap. And then he got, you know, experimented on by the Russians for years. It's totally feasible. It's relatable. It is relatable, is what it is. Um, so yeah, so very few res actually outright resurrections mm -hmm. in the Cap films, is what I'm saying. Did you just call the MCU the Cap films? No, I was saying in, I was <laughs> specifically referring to the Captain America films <laughs> yes. in the MCU. <laughs> Although I totally am capable of it. I thought you had just basically rechristened the entire MCU as <laughs> the Cap <laughs> the films. Cap films. 
I mean, he's not. It, there's some that he's not in, and I know, those and are the weaker ones. It. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How many of those are in my top five? Like one, maybe. Yeah, but yeah, okay. So that's that's the MCU dealt with to everyone's <laughs> satisfaction. What about what about other characters who have mm. who have carked it on screen and then been brought back either in the same film or in sequels? So Gandalf's a pretty big one. So Gandalf's Gandalf, I think- a pretty big one. <laughs> I mean, compared to Hobbit size. So I think he did properly die and was properly brought back to life. Like that is a proper resurrection. It's not a misunderstanding. It's not he had a lie down and then he felt better. He is literally (laughs) resurrected as Gandalf the White. Can I ask a question? Sure. Who resurrects him? Ah, well, (laughs) Chris, oh, you're going to wish you hadn't. Um, As you'd know, obviously, from the Silmarillion, Gandalf is essentially like an angel sent by essentially the Middle-earth god, who essentially Uh has him there doing a job. So he's basically resurrected by God. What? I didn't even go into the full backstory. I'm doing you a solid here. Just trust me on this. God brought him back. They fuck you with the minds of Moria. They fuck you (laughs) with the minds of Moria. Gandalf. Right. So he he is the grey. Yeah. Right. And then he comes back as the white. Yeah. As like the boss of the essentially kind of angels. Right. Yeah. So he's kind of like, yeah, he's, he's, he's upgraded. Is there a point in My Two Towers where he comes back and he's like, you won't believe what happened to me. I fell down and then a big white light went and I came back. Essentially, yes. Like he does correct them and literally say, no, I'm Gandalf the White now. Yes, but did he say what happened? No. No, he's more just like authoritatively like, I am here and now I'm chiller than I've ever been. (laughs) I'm here, deal with it. And then (laughs) the the, the, the little sunglasses go on his face. Is that what happened? Essentially, yes. Does anyone ask, does anyone ever say to him, Gandalf, but you were dead and now you are better. How did that happen? Yeah, they they kind of do, but he just kind of like hand waves. Never mind that, young Samwise. Does he say that? Look, they've all read the Silmarillion, so they know this shit is possible. Okay. Sounds hinky to me. Sounds like shonky storytelling. (laughs) At least when Pepper Potts comes back in Iron Man 3, it's explained... It's because she's got the extremist virus flowing through her uh, veins. That's sure. how. Anyone else? Anyone else? And I want an explanation, a proper explanation this time for how they come back, not some sort of a new age bullshit. It's a proper explanation, all right? It's a freaking Christian metaphor here. So anyway. Yeah, but, I got, but surely- Okay, okay, the- okay. If you want an explanation of how somebody comes back from the dead, I got one for you. I want a canonical in-movie sure. explanation. I got it. I got it not right here. Not some jibber-jabber. I got okay. it right here. All right, go for it. Spock. Spock comes back from the dead because yes, he, he was shot into space with the material yes. that became activated by the Genesis device, which literally just reactivates his cells, regenerates them, brings him back first to childhood, and then very quickly to exactly the age where he was before. Spock has an explanation of everything. Is he the best resurrection in film? No, because his death scene was so freaking incredibly brilliant. Oh, oh I can't even... Not just the death scene, but the the, oh. the burial scene, the bit where Spock gets ejected. I mean, that's some pretty heavy duty shit right there. I feel like of, you're mocking of, me, and I don't approve. I'm not I'm not. You know, I love that film. You I know, do. I love that film. Of all this, oh, I've encountered in my travels. His was, his the, was most. the most. <laughs> 
It's still that too soon. That never happens. No one does that with Gandalf the Grey, do they? You know, they, they, they don't go, They oh. all sit around crying, but then Aragorn's like, look, we got to get out of here. These hills are going to be swarming with orcs by nightfall. That's literally his line. And so uh, <laughs> they have to run to Lothlorien. Like, it's not their fault. Is that it's his like line as well? We've got to run to Lothlorien. <laughs> I mean, it's like a five-minute running montage. I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and then all the elves, like all night, all the elves are doing is singing laments about how great Gandalf was. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. You just, oh, I don't know why oh, you're laughing. No. It's all very serious. I'm not laughing. I'm not laughing. I'm not laughing. While we're on fantasy stuff, it's not a nice character, but a great resurrection scene is Voldemort's resurrection in Goblet mm. of Fire. That That's is fair. like yeah. crux of the whole storyline. It's a terrifying scene. It's like our hero cornered. It's kill the spare. It's blood oh. and cauldrons and That's with the rebirth too. of that weird little baby and then he like sort of grows up and it's ugh. Um, yeah. yeah great scene great terrible scene. dude horrible mm. back. great horrible scene terrible dude up. what about Star Wars well obviously I mean Palpatine would be the greatest resurrection ever if we'd seen that in person yes. oh wait no it wouldn't it's fucking shit um, somehow Palpatine <laughs> returned hey guys dark secrets cloning secrets only the Sith's new blah 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 it's fine Okay, okay, sorry. It's a good mistake. movie. At least yeah. it explained more than Gandalf. <laughs> yeah, hey, right. right. I'm not having a go. I'm not having a go. I, I, I'm, Believe me, I'm not having a go. I, I would know better than to tarry with Lord of the Rings fans. <laughs> That's for sure. They're all armed. Um, but I'm just saying that, you know. Well, only I, with I, axes I, and bows, you'll be fine. Oh, that's, yeah, that's true. Because I, I forgot I repel arrows. <laughs> But I'm just, I would just like a canonical in movie explanation for how he came back. And you get that with Palpatine. I mean, it's bullshit, but somehow, at least you get it. I mean, <laughs> yes. yeah, sure. Somehow it's doing a lot of heavy lifting there. <laughs> <laughs> somehow, <laughs> somehow they decided this would be a good idea to do. Does anybody else come back from the dead in Star Wars? Uh, Darth Maul. Oh yeah, that one's bullshit. You want an explanation that's bullshit? That That's pretty bullshit. I mean. The explanation is. Fans loved him. Yeah. <laughs> so, so years later, we brought him back. Does it count if you come back as a ghost? No, that's not resurrection. I mean, that's literally... Good point. Like, Good point. I've watched right. a lot of episodes of Supernatural, so I'm very familiar with the difference. The actual answer, <laughs> by the way, to all of this is uh-huh. Dean Winchester. Like, And I have heroically not said that until this point in the conversation. It's been, wow, like three minutes already, so... It's been 10 minutes. It's been 10 wow, minutes. We've wow. been talking for 10 minutes and you haven't have mentioned Dean so Winchester. I have restrained. He genuinely, he gets lifted out of hell by an angel. An angel of the Lord comes down, takes hold of his shoulder and lifts him out of hell. That's how well, that he gets like resurrected. Gandalf. That happened to Gandalf, right? Well, no, but then he, ha- he actually wakes up in his own grave and has to dig himself out. Like the bride in Kill Bill. Mm. Very much like that. If we're saying no spirits, if it has to be corporeal, that means that we can't have the spirit of Meryl Streep coming back in the church at the end of <laughs> Mamma Mia 2, which is genuinely so emotional. Like, just one of the most emotional scenes. Or Carl Weathers in Happy Gilmore. We can't have any of this stuff. <laughs> Damn. All right, so, so no ghosts. Or the ghosts, vision of ghosts. Patches O'Houlihan and Dodgeball. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, too bad Hallmark don't make a sorry your coach was crushed by two tons of irony card. (laughs) (laughs) I love Uh, that line so much. I just watched that last week. It's still good. It's still funny. Neo in the Matrix several times. We're talking like initial rebirth coming out of the gooey pod and also at the end when he's like fully the one and he's seeing all the code. 
good resurrection. That's good a very hell. good resurrection. Yeah, mm. yeah. Okay, I'll allow that. Yeah, alien resurrection. Alien, whichever one. No, not alien not resurrection feeling. though, right? We're not we're not feeling alien resurrection, well, it's not are we? Terrible. It's not the worst of the alien franchise. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. What was that alien movie in which there was a resurrection? What, was <laughs> <laughs> what could that be called? I don't yeah. remember. No, I'm not wild about about that. I think they should have let bygones be bygones and let and let Ripley, you know, just stop after Aliens. Mm, uh, basically, Alien Three's got a lot going for it, but just stop after Aliens uh, yeah. is the, the best way to go. Um, I'm sure I've said this before in the show, mm. but uh, and it's it's technically this doesn't qualify, but I'm going to say it anyway, which is Rambo. So you guys know about Rambo? Oh, okay. So Rambo. Yeah. In the novel, David Morell's novel, First Blood, Rambo dies. And mm-hmm. he doesn't die in the Ted Kotcheff movie. So when they when they decided to bring him back for Rambo, First Blood, Part 2, uh, David Morell wrote a tie-in novelization in which basically just Rambo wasn't dead anymore and just kind of <laughs> ignored just just ignore the last 10 pages of that novel folks crank two he was dead but he got better he got he went, better he went, yeah he went full chev jellios as does ian malcolm actually in the lost world he dies in jurassic park the novel but because he lives in the movie they brought him back for the sequel michael Crichton brought him back for the sequel and the other one I was thinking of, which has been much in the conversation this week, I don't know if your Twitter feed has been like mine, but there has been an, a completely spontaneous, but very widespread outswelling and outpouring of love for uh, the great Brendan Fraser. And in particular for his masterwork, mm-hmm. 1999's The Mummy. And Imhotep <laughs> oh, has got to be up there. <laughs> I love The Mummy, but his masterwork... I and George of the so. Jungle is right there. I hey, I also love George of the Jungle. No no shade on George of the Jungle. Literally mm-hmm. none. He's got a perfect tan. He clearly has never met shade. But but yeah, it, it, the mummy is great. The mummy is incredible. The mummy is great. The yeah. mummy is great. Yeah, it terrified me. I was eight years old when I saw that and I had nightmares oh, for literally months of oh, scarab beetles burrowing into people's brains and that the cupboard in my room had a mummy in it. It was awful. But it, it, it shaped me as a person for the better. So, you know. Well. Imhotep. Imhotep. Oh, don't! I'm gonna, I'm gonna have horrible dreams again tonight. <laughs> I'm gonna mention real quick a couple of other ones. Obviously, there are lots of people who are resurrected in horror films. People who are killed in previous movies and then come back when they proved popular. Mm. Uh, I'm, I don't know whether, technically speaking, the greatest horror movie character of them all, Ash from the Evil Dead movies, died. Technically speaking, he didn't. The end of Evil Dead, you see him screaming, and then you're meant, mm. you're meant to infer that he's been killed. But then Evil Dead Two continues, and he gets possessed, and then he has to struggle fighting against the evil all night until then he gets reinforcements in the shape of Annie and Ed. No, anyway. Um. So yeah, it's um. So I'm not going to say Ash, but I will say obviously Michael Myers has been known to come back from the dead once or twice. Just Jason a little Furhees, bit, yeah. Our old buddy Drac the Air, for example, he's forever forgetting that he's dead, the idiot. Freddy Krueger's whole thing is resurrection. Mm-hmm. That's his whole deal. Uh, so so those dudes, I'm going to say as well. Dewey from the Scream movies. Oh, yeah. Now, I'm pretty sure he was meant to have died in both Scream and Scream 2. <laughs> and, then, and then audiences went, definitely one of those movies, he died. And then test audiences went, you can't kill him. You can't He's kill Dewey. awesome. And he so is. they brought him back. 
and I hope that he makes it through Scream 5 uh, as well. Can I just say, the only trouble with this question is that the ultimate answer, the number one answer that will surely be the case, is the one that we can't talk about yet, because we are still waiting, still over a year into this pandemic, waiting to find how Han Solo is back from the dead in Fast and Furious 9, and that is going to be <laughs> the answer to this question. I know a lot of the other deaths in that series are kind of miscommunications. Letty sure. was dead, then she got better, then she had amnesia, and then that got better. Like, mm-hmm. there's been all kinds of amazing um, full-on soap opera deaths, revivals, etc. But the ultimate one is Han. I cannot wait. I cannot wait for what that explanation is of Sun Kang being back in the Fast and Furious <laughs> movies. I mean, they switched the whole order of the franchise around purely to keep him in it and then still killed him off. And now they're bringing him back again. Look, I'm pretty yeah. sure that the answer is very simple. God did it. It's just like Gandalf. <laughs> An it's angel just like came Gandalf. down and yeah. he was shirtless and his nipples were out. That's how the supernatural one works, right? That's not how um, that works. He wears a trench coat. And then he lifts them up and... That would chafe on the nipples. Did he have, have other clothes... No? Yeah, other clothes. That's why they other wear other clothes. clothes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Don't fall prey to this, Ben. There's still hope for you. It's too Honestly, late for Chris. Literally, my only association with supernatural <laughs> whatsoever is it's those nipples. two guys and nipples. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, that's all you need. I was going to say real quick as well. Godzilla. He's come back loads, hasn't he? That's and true. Yeah. In uh, Godzilla: King of the Monsters, he Ooh. is uh, he is resurrected via nuclear explosion. That's pretty badass. Yeah, it's not the typical effect of a nuclear explosion. Now, obviously, I'm not a nuclear physicist. If you are, feel free to correct me on this. But nuclear explosions generally kill people rather than bringing them back from not the dead. Not Godzilla. Yeah, because well, he's I'm just made saying. of radioactive nuclear explosion shit. Yeah, he's made of nuclear. Um, and Superman, of course, of has course. come back quite a bit, also, uh, including fairly recently, twice. <sighs> Wild. What a time. What a time to be alive. And then not alive and then alive again. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to have your question read out in the Emperor podcast, you can get in touch with us via one method and one method only. You can either wait for me to have a meltdown and ask for questions on Twitter. I'm at Chris Hewitt, or you can slide into my DMs. But pretty much Twitter is the only game in town right now. But please do that. And you never know, you might have your question read out on the old Empire podcast. Time now for our second guest this week. And Ammonite came out last week to much acclaim. We love it here at Empire. We are mm-hmm. going to be doing a spoiler special for this movie at some point. On last week's show, we had Kate Winslet, who stars in that movie. And now this week, we are delighted to be having a chat with Francis Lee, the film's director, who, despite living in the far reaches of Yorkshire, the coldest, furthest reaches of Yorkshire, uh, managed to get onto Squadcast and have a good old natter with Terry White, our fearless leader. Enjoy. Welcome to the Empire Podcast, Francis Lee. Hello. Hello. Hi, How Terry. Hello, everybody. I'm really good. good, thank you. How are you? Good. Well, I'm good. We're doing this uh, remotely, as we always do in COVID times now, and we've just spent a good 20 minutes neither of us properly having our cameras on or being able to work out what we're doing. But now I think we're all systems go. Yes, I, th- I think we we failed on the old technical front. <laughs> yeah, we could probably have done with some assistance. Um, but we are here to talk um, about your incredible film, Ammonite. So take me back, not that far actually, not as far as, as we might not expect, because you were working in a scrapyard Four, what, four years ago? Um, I left 
in um, maybe five years ago. I left in January 2016. So five five years ago, just before I started the official prep on my first film, God's Own Country. And when you kind of walked off the scrapyard that day, were you thinking, I'm going to become a massive director who has Kate Winslet in his movies? Or in the back of your mind, were you kind of thinking you might have had to go back there and work at some point? Yeah. So I think, I mean, I didn't think too much about it. At the time, I'd only ever thought about making one film, and that was God's Own Country. And it had taken me all my energy. And uh, all that sacrifice to get to the point of making that one film. And I just thought to myself, if I can make this one film, then that will be good enough. I hadn't figured out what I was going to do afterwards or what what life might look like afterwards. Or mm. indeed, if, if anybody, you know, would like God's Own Country or if the film would land anywhere. It was It was such a small budgeted film. It was a micro budget. And the expectation, I think, because of the subject matter and the location was very, very small. It, it didn't feel like I was launching off. It really didn't feel like I was launching off into a, a career of a filmmaker at all. When did you kind of first realise that you had something spe- really special in God's Own Country insofar as it was going to have the impact that it did end up having? I mean, honestly, I don't think until I don't think until um, we premiered at Sundance, and we premiered at Sundance again because I'd never made a film before, and we didn't have anybody famous in it at the time, which feels weird now because obviously last night Josh O'Connor, who plays Johnny in it, would have won a Golden Globe. He did, but yes. I, yeah, very proud of that lad. But um, at the time, you know, he wasn't famous. He, he, he'd, he'd worked, but he wasn't famous. Anyway, so we, pre- we premiered at Sundance and um, we got very good reviews. The first few reviews were very good and people started to talk about it. And as the week went on, because we were at Sundance for a week and there, was, there were more screenings, it just, the, the attention around it and around the actors in it just got bigger and bigger. It kind of slowly grew. But I honestly don't think we were fully aware of how it was resonating with people or, or its impact until we went to Berlin, which was a few weeks after Sundance. And we premiered there in the Panorama sub- selection. And we got there and the guys who organized the festival said, we've had to put on three more screenings. Um, because it sold, it, it, all our screenings just instantly sold out. And and the body of interest there actually was the thing that I think we all started to go, oh, oh, I think, I think this, you know, I think this might, you know, carry on and break out and, and uh, gather interest. Mm. And you did, is it right that you had the idea for Ammonite while in promotion for God's Own Country? Yeah, pretty much. I was, I was, I went, I dedicated myself um, to the promotion of God's Own Country around the world. I thought to myself, I, I, I might not have this opportunity again to travel with a film. And again, you know, nobody famous in it. I'd never made a film before. So I thought if I don't turn up, you know, that then then it's very hard for, for the local distributor in whatever territory to sell this film. So I so I dedicated myself to traveling and whilst I was traveling, I came across Mary Anning and started to think about about her and, and 
what her story might mean to me. And you were buying a, or you were looking for a fossil, right? And it was then that Mary Anning came up because she's not a household name. She's not incredibly well known, even though, as as kind of you explained, she was incredibly significant as a paleontologist. Yeah. So she she at the t- I think she's becoming more famous now. And they've just released a 50p piece with her image on the back of it. But she she was one of those hidden figures. And her voice, I don't think, had re- really been properly heard as a fully rounded person. I think, you know, people had, had started to be aware of her as a paleontologist and her significance within that science. Um, but I still didn't feel that the person behind the science was was um, was feeling fully realised. And it is important to say that this isn't a biopic, right? A traditional yeah. biopic. Yeah, absolutely. I kind of knew from the from the beginning I didn't want to tell a biopic um, for various reasons. One mainly because there's virtually nothing written about Mary Anning by her contemporaries. Again, I guess that 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 could be put down to the fact that she was a woman and a working class woman, you know, so so there wasn't anybody really writing about her at the time. And I wanted to tell us, I wanted to to have a snapshot of her life, if you like, at a very particular point in her life. But I, But what I wanted to do was like, tell a story about a Mary Anning as I saw her with, with respect and to elevate her and to give her a voice you know. And so how do you get Kate Winslet and Saoirse Ronan for your second film? Because as you said, you had amazing actors in your first film, in both Josh and Alec. But as you say, they kind of weren't big, big stars or household names at that point. You kind of went from that to two of the biggest actors in the world. Yeah, it was. It, yeah, it was. It was funny. I think it was because both Kate and Saoirse and their, their agents had seen God's Own Country and had really, really loved it and really liked it. And then I wrote the script of Ammonite and I, I worked really, really hard on the script. And, you know, it was very detailed. It was, it was very atmospheric. Everything you see on screen is, is written in the script. So I think it was the script when the script was sent to Kate. Obviously, she'd love God's Own Country, but then she really responded to the script. She really loved it and loved how it was written. She really loved the character. I think she said to me that it scared her, that playing Mary would scare her, and she likes to be pushed and challenged, and and if something scares her, that's a good sign. So, yeah, so so Kate, Kate was sent the script, I think, on a Saturday. And by the Saturday night, she'd read it and confirmed she'd like to do it. So, so it was it was very um, it was very quick, but it was very lovely and very very humbling that you know uh, someone in Kate's position wanted to come and work with somebody who'd only ever made one film before. But what is it like when that email comes through? Because that's what I always think about that that <laughs> moment because you're going, of course you want Kate Winslet. That's really exciting. It's exciting that she's reading it. And then you get the note saying, oh, yes, Kate Winslet is going to do your film. To be honest, Terry, it's, it's, re- it's really exciting. But I see that emotion in your belly. You know, when you get those knots in your belly. And, and excitement and anxiety are very close together in the feeling. 
And so I, I, I think it was equal measures of excitement and anxiety. I was really scared. I was, I was really scared. And I was really scared until for a couple of days, actually, until I managed to get Kate on the phone and we got to speak about it. Because, you, you know, I'd never met her. I'd never spoken to her. I didn't know how she would be or, or whether or not we would click or, you know, if, if she would want to work in the same way as me. And so, yeah, it was it was exciting, but it was also pretty scary. And when you say work in the same way as me, can you talk a little bit about how you like to work and how that particularly kind of came together with Kate? I like kind of a lot of preparation with actors. And on God's Own Country, I think I'd had four or five months with both Josh and Alec to build their characters before we shot the film. And so that's how I wanted to work again. And so, so you know, I like to take a, a, a nice chunk of time. And with Kate and Saoirse, it was about four or five months. And we start from the moment the character is born right up until the moment you first meet them in the film. And we investigate them fully and we work out everything about them, almost in an incredibly detailed timeline, whether that be their relationships with family or friends or lovers, their school life, what, you know, their hobbies, what they like to do, a typical day in their life at each point, significant moments, you know, what, what clothes they prefer, what's their favorite color, what do they eat? everything we work out every single detail about them so when we actually come to shooting we have answered a lot of the questions that are going to come up we know exactly why they are like they are and what and and how they got there and for me that just adds an awful lot of depth to the characterization and as a part of that process as well is because you know because i don't like hand doubles or stunt doubles or anything yeah. like that I, I, I like the actor to, to really be able to do what their character does. So in Kate's case on this film, that meant going out onto those beaches in Lyme Regis for weeks and learning how to fossil. And, you know, she had the tools that, that Mary might have used and she wore the character boots we, we thought Mary would wear. And she went out there for hours and hours and hours every day and learn how to fossil on those beaches. And she became so kind of uh, proficient at it. It, it. You know, she she became incredibly knowledgeable. And and therefore, when we came to shoot, she was, she was so adept at handling the fossils, at chipping them away, at polishing them. She understood the process. And again, I think that really added so much brilliant layering to, to her performance. And she was very supportive from from conversations um, I've had with her, very supportive of your vision and the way you like to work and and kind of you doing what you want to do without too much interference. She seemed to be a great support in that sense. Yeah, she, she was basic from the moment she came on right up to now, actually. She, she became the person that supported me through the way in which I was making the film, what the film would become, the story we were telling. She's been incredibly passionate about committing to, to the vision of the film and also actually the character of Mary that we created. And were there moments when, you know, she kind of challenged you or, or worked with you in a, a, a much more collaborative way to make sure that what you'd kind of put on the page ended up on screen? 
Oh uh, yeah, yeah. She was she, she was incredibly um, protective, actually, of the vision that we started out with and the script. So you know, occasionally when you're making a film, you're asked to do a rewrite by by somebody, and then you slot those pages into the script. And Kate would would get these pages, and then you know she'd pull me aside and go, "What? Why have you done this? Why have you written this?" Because has somebody told you to write this? Because it doesn't fit with what we're doing. And and so you know she she actually backed me up an awful lot in that vision. And in in a sense, helped me with my confidence making this film to be true to the to the uh, script and the vision we'd set out to make from the beginning. And you have been promoting this film and and taking it to festivals, but all in this weird, distanced, uh, sat in your kitchen at your kitchen table way. What's that been like as an experience? Is it? I mean, it must be quite weird. Understatement of the year. <laughs> yeah, it's really strange. It's really odd. And, you know, I'm always careful because obviously the pandemic has meant incredible things for people and incredible losses in terms of, you know, people losing their loved ones or their jobs or, or all of those things. But but it's been very, in a sense it's been very disappointing. And one of the things that I really enjoyed about making my first film was the interaction with audiences, being able to talk to the people who are coming to see the film and have dialogue about it. And of course, there hasn't been any of that. The only reactions I've really managed to get about from the film is has either been from journalists or social media. But that doesn't actually. You know, it's just not the same as being in a cinema with people, hearing their responses, being able to de- debate the film and talk about it. So, it, yeah, it's been very, very odd. And finally, two films down, you did have the idea for this film while you were promoting God's Own Country. Um, do you know what you're working on next? I do. I do know what I've, I've written it. Yeah, I do. <laughs> Well, we can't wait to hear all about it. <laughs> I know. I always feel like I do feel a bit of a knob, you know, never not being able to go, yeah, I've written it and it's this and this is what's going to happen. But of course, it's it's not because of any other reason apart from you think, well, you know, there's always a chance it's not going to get made. Yeah. And then people are going to be saying to you, well, I'm to that film you were talking about. And um, so <laughs> you're always slightly cautious until, you know, you're off shooting it. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I've written it. and. Um, and I'm excited about it. Lovely. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the Empire Podcast, Francis Lee. Thank you very much, Terry White. And that was Francis Lee, and Ammonite is available to rent on PVOD right now. And now it's time to talk about this week's movie news. And my God, there's, there's a ton. So much. There's a ton of movie news, guys. Uh, should we just skip it and go straight to the reviews rather than <laughs> just talk about this dense wall of movie news? I think there's, I mean, this is one of those weeks where you, you say there's only one place to start and then you could choose about five different things. <laughs> uh, I think out. we should start with the return of one of the most beloved detectives of all time, Helen. You're absolutely right. Gil Grissom is coming back to CSI, <laughs> folks. It was announced last night. William Peterson and Georgia Fox are back as Gil Grissom and Sarah Seidel in a show that is laughably being pitched as a sequel to CSI. <laughs> Just call the CSI. 
Just call it CSI. Yeah, isn't it called no CSI Vegas? Whereas original CSI was CSI Vegas. I know. What's the fucking uh, stupid? Yeah. So it's called CSI Vegas. And I, in the week that Elliot Stabler is returning to Law and Order, I am absolutely just here for it. Just bring wow. them all back. Bring all the old detectives back. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Forget James. It sounds like you've joined the Pilot TV podcast it really this week. Does. I just, yeah. Honestly, I mean, I, honestly, it's, I'm very, very excited about that. Uh, but there is another great detective who's returning, isn't there? there? Benoit Blanc is back, back, back. Blank. Specifically, in Blanc. Blanc. Benoit, Benoit Blanc is back. Benoit Blanc. There it is. I suspect foul play. In two, not one, but two sequels to Knives Out, both of them set to appear on Netflix, which apparently splashed in excess of $400 million to buy these two. Um, <laughs> they outbid so- me by just $449 million, $999,000. <laughs> Um, and uh, the idea is, I think, that he's going to be investigating new crimes in each one. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis has already got taken to Instagram to say that the Thromby family are busy with family counselling and will not be appearing. So it will presumably be an all-new, all-star-studded, all-cast um, mm, all cast. suspected of foul play. The thing that really excites me is that they've sort of already teased that the the first of these two new films is going to be shot in Greece, presumably set yep. in Greece, which immediately makes me think that it's going to be the mystery of a young woman who discovers that she has three potential father figures. She doesn't quite know which one of those uh, is her real dad. And so she instigates a plan to get them all to the island. And then Benoit Blanc's going to come in and try and deduce which of the three dads is her real dad, whether that even matters. I think mm-hmm. they might be singing It's Gonna Be a Blast. I think Pierce Brosnan is going to be in it, Stellan Skarsgård. Wow. You're going to have Colin Firth. Everyone's going to be in this movie. It's going to this be amazing. This is a fantastic, fantastic idea, Ben. I just have... And, and, and so original, which is what I love mm. about it, but I don't hear the murder. Have you heard Pierce Brosnan sing? <laughs> <laughs> the day the music died. <laughs> the survivors. SOS. Sorry, mate, you're beyond help. I would accept it if it ends with Benoit Blanc driving off into the sunset with the young girl's granny who's played by Cher. That would be okay. <laughs> I'm all for it. I'm all for it. Uh, this, this news has made me so happy. It's so happy. <laughs> and there are things about it that you can quibble with. It's very, you know, there's the, 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 the cinema purist in me is a little sad that these are going to go to Netflix. Uh, but, mm. you know, presumably we'll get to see them on the big screen if the Netflix policy returns post-pandemic of showing films in the cinema for a couple of weeks at least. Yeah, let's hope. So we will hopefully get to see Knives Out 2 and 3 on the big screen. Yeah, th- there was a part of me that was just like, I'm, I'm sad that these are going to be Netflix because I think it was great that he came up with this amazing original idea and pulled this huge cast together and made this cinematic event. At mm. the same time, when I saw what that Netflix bid was, I was like... Brian Johnson, you go and get your money. You've earned it. I'm happy for you, yeah. man. Yeah. You've yeah. like created something that's entirely your own and people mm. loved it. And now you've yeah. like pulled this massive deal off for it. That's that's amazing. He's earned it. Here's the real question. Who's going to wear the jumper? In Greece? Are you kidding me? There has to be a jumper. I'm sorry. There Why has does to be it have a jumper. There has <laughs> to be an equivalent be of the jumper. jumper. What's the what's the Greek equivalent of the jumper? I don't I don't even know. I'm, maybe I need to do some investigation into just a, a Greek vest, fashion. surely, isn't it? Because you know, it's going to be so warm over there. No, it's going but to be that's lots not of... the same. You don't understand. Ah, mm. oh, it matters. It, it does matter. You're absolutely right. And someone was asking me yesterday about 
why take this deal, this $450 million, this reported $450 million? Why take $450 million rather than, you know, if when the first movie made $311 million worldwide and became a huge hit in ancillary markets and mm. DVD and all that jazz. So you would, therefore, if you were a betting film podcast, you would say that Knives Out 2 and Knives Out 3 would be much bigger, surely, right? But then you look at the the way the marketplace is going right now, so maybe that factors into it. Then there's also the idea that, you know, this is money that will go directly to the company behind these movies. Mm -hmm. And I imagine it means that Ryan Johnson and Ron Bergman, his producer, and Daniel Craig will probably, they're not going to be wanting for cash for a while. And this will mean that they'll be more taken care of, I would say, than they normally would with having to split lots of money with a distributor and mm. and, and theatre chains yeah. and all that sort of stuff. Which means so, they'll be freer to come up with more original ideas, yes. hopefully, for us in Precisely. the future. It's, Happy it's days. Their, their house, their coffee, their rules from here on out. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's exactly it. This, this gives Ryan Johnson, he already had a lot of freedom in the first movie, but yeah, it gives him a lot of freedom to do what he wants to do. Uh, for for Knives Out two and three, and what he wants to do is go to Greece, and I am all for that. Uh, I am all for doing a set visit, and then Knives Out three. I see Benoit Blanc being a Maldives kind of guy, <laughs> but fair play to Ryan Johnson because he's 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 taken this character and he's immediately gone right. The last one I shot in Boston, it was freezing fucking cold. I'm taking Benoit Blanc to Greece. That's mm. what I'm doing, and we're going to shoot. In the summer. Yes. Yes, please. Give me some Benoit Blanc. Hook it to my veins. Oh, yeah. Hook it to my veins. Hook Obi-Wan Kenobi to my veins. Also. Yeah. By way of a clumsy segue. (laughs) Yes, because they've announced a cast of the Obi-Wan Kenobi uh, limited series, which starts also starts filming soon. Lots of stuff starts filming soon. Mm. And this is a really, really promising cast what? yeah Talk it me really through. is so we obviously have Ewan McGregor back as Obi-Wan Kenobi we knew that Hayden Christensen is also going to be playing uh, Vader Obi-Wan Kenobi um, yes but also Joel Edgerton and Bonnie Pierce have been confirmed as Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru um, yes. presumably um, Blue for Milk Ahoy <laughs> but also the new ones Kamel Nanjani uh, O'Shea Jackson Jr Indira Varma always good Benny Safdie Sun Kang we were talking about Han Solo already and here he is again I mean please he should just keep that name and just see what happens <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. and Rupert Friend Moses Ingram and Simone Kessel this all sounds very very promising I'm here for these people so they've cast Han Solo and someone called Kessel I mean, this is pure Star Wars casting. This is right? nominative determinism right here. It really is. All for it. The, the fact that Edgerton and, and Bonnie Pierce are both back immediately makes me think, if if Un- Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru are in this, are we going to see a young Luke? Surely that will be is going to be part of this series, which Toddling is something that I hadn't probably. really thought about, but that's like a fascinating thought. And this seems like the show that's hues most closely to like we're delving back into this timeline and to these characters mm-hmm. that we know. Like obviously Mando is mostly off doing its own thing and occasionally bringing back some familiar faces. But the whole hook of this is we're going back to Obi-Wan, we're going back to Vader, we're going back into the prequel era. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of fascinating the thought that we might see even I don't think he'll be a huge part of the show, but I like I think we will see a young Luke here somewhere. 
the scuttlebutt is that he's going to be 10 years old in this and uh, they haven't announced that casting yet. Whether the whether there has been an actor cast and they just haven't revealed the name mm. remains to be seen. But yeah, it, it seems very, very likely we're going to see a young Luke Skywalker in this. And the, the thing I, I'm fascinated to see how this, this show unfolds for a number of reasons. Like how does Obi-Wan barely age between, you know, the prequels and now and then like suddenly turns into Alec Guinness in the next 10 years? Yeah, yeah that crazy old man. And also... <laughs> How much of a relationship does Luke have with Obi-Wan before A New Hope? Because I think a lot of people misinterpret their relationship at the beginning of that movie as their meeting for the first time, but they're clearly yeah. not. No. They clearly have met before, but this is but, maybe just the first time they're really properly hanging out. It's not Marty and Doc, you know what I no. mean, in terms of he's hanging around with a crazy old man, but I think they have met before. And how is Vader going to fit into this? How is Hayden Christensen going to fit into this? Are they going to bring Hayden Christensen back just to stick him in flashbacks or something? Or I don't know. Seems odd, but hey. Presumably he's going to be then. So Vader is going to be looking for. Does he. Is he going to be looking for Luke? Does he even know Luke exists? He doesn't, does he? I guess it's got to be keeping the secret of that from him, right? Maybe he's getting close and they have to figure out how to, you know, throw him off the scent or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's it's exciting. It's exciting stuff. I'm absolutely on board for this show, Um, which which is not me announcing my casting as a young Luke Skywalker. (laughs) But if they haven't cast it yet, hey, you know, go for a a blobby fella in his his 40s. That's that's, that's the the sort of casting that I can mocap. I can mocap it. We'll be looking at that character like this awkwardly mo-capped young Luke Skywalker looks we- moves weirdly like Chris. <laughs> yes, yes. He, every time he bends down, he goes ah. <laughs> well, you know that's something a lot of ten-year-olds have problems with. You know, yes, the action scene in Episode Three where Luke takes five minutes to get up. <laughs> it's, it's really, really took me out of it. Look at full Irishman. But I could do it. I could do it. Okay, I give my audition. <laughs> I wanted to go wow. to the Dodger Station to pick up some American fighters. See, I could do it. I could do it. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. massively, okay. massively, 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 massively excited for Obi-Wan Kenobi. Please don't be shit. Please don't be shit. Please don't be shit. And that is something I am also going to be saying, and you may be surprised about this, about the Suicide Squad. Because the trailer for the Suicide Squad came out last week, and... And I know everyone in this room doesn't share this opinion, so this is going to be interesting. I fell in love with it, you folks. I Aww. think this could be a belter. And I didn't fall in love. I wasn't like kissing the screen or anything. I mean, but I heard I mean, you I were. I kind of was. I kind of was. Uh, but I thought this looks absolutely terrific. I know that not everybody here shares my opinion. Isn't that right? Helen O'Hara. <gasps> Gasp, it was me all along. Um, Jack Hughes. <laughs> <laughs> Jack look, Hughes had nothing to do with it. It was, it was Helen. <laughs> it was all me. Now, look, I don't I don't hate it or anything. It's only a trailer. I'm still, you know, every day is Christmas Eve and I'm, I'm hopeful for the film. I just felt it was... I, okay, so I have this thing when films that have maybe not previously been an R and are now an R, you know, series series and stuff, and they're so desperate to convince you of that, that they're like front-loading the trailer with like swear words and like violence i'm a bit like oh, just like could you just dial it down like it's not it's actually not big and it's not clever it can be big and it can be clever but yeah. it's not big and clever in a trailer it just makes you look a little bit 
desperate to me. So I just, I, I got that, that edge of... Or is it conveying uh, the tone of the film? No, it might well be, but it just felt uh, tiresomely teenage a little bit. Uh, no disrespect to teenagers, many of you are not tiresome. But just like, I, I was a little bit exhausted by the trailer. And I hope to love the film itself. I think, it, I'm sure it will kind of settle in and the rough ed- edges will not feel so rough uh, in the film when it comes out. But I, I just, yeah, I was a bit struggling to keep up with the love that other people had for it. Ben, where do you stand on, on the Suicide Squad trailer? Oh, I really like it. I really like it. For me, the I wonder if they went with the R-rated trailer because they want to sort of differentiate it a bit from yeah, Guardians sure, yeah. in terms of like yeah. showing that he's doing that this one isn't going to be family friendly and it kind of puts that on yeah. front street the thing that I really like about it he is being that, James Gunn by the way we should, yes. we should yeah. say that the, the thing that I really like about this is that it feels very James Gunn both the James Gunn of Guardians of the Galaxy and also the James Gunn of Slither and Super. Uh, the meshing of those two tones, it just feels very, very him to me in a way that I really enjoy. Like, I, I know you expect the 70s soundtrack thing, but as soon as I heard Steely Dan on this, I was like, oh, I do love this already. <laughs> and King Shark, like, chomping people down and ripping dudes in half and having the voice of Sylvester Stallone. We were all convinced it was going to be Taika. And it's Sylvester Stallone, and that's great. And, and it fits so well, because I don't think Taika's voice would have fit that mm. character quite as well, actually, now thinking about it. And, and it, it's got this lovely deadpan quality to it. Uh, Idris looks very, very funny in it, so he's playing a character called Character. I can't remember what his character's called. Um, what's Blood it called? Sport. Bloodsport. I cannot for the life of me keep Bloodsport, Dead, dead Deathstroke, and Deadshot yeah. straight in my head. Deadpool, Bloodstroke, blood, Deadpool, Bloodshot. Oh, no. There probably is a Bloodshot. Uh, so he's Death Spike, and uh, he's just got this lovely. Because I, I think he can be very, very funny, Idris Elba, and he's mm. not often allowed to be very, very funny in stuff. He's a hoot in his Sky commercials, and I think that might. This might be him unleashed in a way, in this very, very, oh, fucking hell, we're all going right. to die kind, that, of, kind of way. Yeah. That, oh, for fuck's sake. For is, fuck's sake, we're is, all going to die. Like, even just that line reading instantly goes some way to making up for cats. Like, McCavity, <laughs> all could be forgiven. <laughs> if he is at that level throughout this whole film, then then we, we write off cats. McCavity is forgiven. We all forget about yes. the, the sparkly disappearing and the... Yeah, he's doing penance. Yeah, he's but so the Suicide Squad. In case you don't know what it is, is a sequel slash reboot of Suicide Squad, which for my money is the worst movie in the DCEU by a country mile, and it's just dreadful, 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 (laughs) awful schlock. Uh, Helen is not as convinced about its its demerits as the worst uh, movie in the DCEU. It's terrible. It's terrible. But you have other movies. You know. Yeah, there's some other dreadful movies are available (laughs) but uh, this looks so much better so this is written and directed by James Gunn and stars an all-star cast Uh, some people who were in the first movie so the likes of um, my old old mate Joel Kinnaman as uh, Rick Flagg and Margot Robbie's back as Harley Quinn who you know she's not going to be killed no one's killing Harley Quinn in this movie or any any time ever. You know, if it's one person who's not going to be suicided in the, in the Suicide Squad, it's Harley Quinn. And honestly, I'm glad about that because if this trailer proves anything, on top of Birds of Prey, is that the best thing in the DCEU by far is Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn. That just, mm. like, keep that going mm. forever. She's great in this trailer. More of that forever. forever. Yeah. She's really funny in this. 
She is. And so they're, the Suicide Squad is brought together to do something for reasons. And the gag here that they're going to lean into is that unlike the last movie where the Suicide Squad mainly made it to the end intact, here there's going to be lots of violent, comedic, technicolor, gory deaths of these rather inept supervillains. Oh, good. It's the boys again, like exploding people all over the place. Woo. Well, I listen, Helen, I like dropping eggs from a great height and I like watching people explode. <laughs> Sue me. Uh, so I'm, I'm totally on board for this. Although I will say, and I'm going to include now the other trailer that came out this week, which is the trailer for Guy Ritchie's uh, reunion with Jason Statham, Wrath of Man, mm. that both of these trailers make me want to subscribe to Emma Thrower, formerly of this parish. Her philosophy when it comes to watching trailers was don't watch trailers because yeah. they gave too much away. And I think that as much as I enjoyed the Suicide Squad trailer and the Wrath of Man trailer, they give too much away, including deaths of major, major characters. The gag with the Suicide Squad is that, you know, don't get attached, don't get too attached. You're not you don't know who's gonna make it through until the third act. I have a fairly Except good for idea. Marco Robbie. Except for Marco Robbie. But I have a fairly good idea who makes it through to the third act, uh, yeah. having watched the trailer. And that's not ideal. I did I did very much enjoy the Wrath of Man trailer. I, you know I didn't like Guy Ritchie's last film, which I thought was appalling dreck but this one looks really fun and has Jason Statham you know taking apart a city full of bad guys which I'm super duper here for a couple of very very quick shout outs uh, our good podcast chum Karn Hardy has lined mm. up his next movie and he's going to be working with Sam Raimi which is very very exciting yeah. uh, and weirdly his first project his first movie project which was Abominable which was his uh, Yeti movie and that was announced years ago and that was going to be with Sam Raimi as well and that never quite happened so it's all coming full circle uh, which is very very cool so it's going to be a kind of haunted house movie called Every House is Haunted and it's going to be about an insurance investigator who is going to be investigating uh, the death of a couple um, the claim is that they were killed by a haunted house and he's like what? Haunted houses don't exist Ew. And haunted house is like hold my ectoplasm. <laughs> so this could be this could be a fun one, very very fun. Speaking mm. of fun, Adam Wingard, he's <laughs> going to use the the cash a which is going to be afforded him by the success because it is looking mm. fairly successful of Godzilla versus Kong. Uh, he's already lined up a face off sequel, and he's going to be directing Thunder, Thunder, Thundercats. Oh, oh! Ben, you're too young, but yeah, you know, yeah, that means nothing to me. <laughs> Pokemon or GTFO? Oh wow! Oh, what's You've GTFO? Is that something that the kids are playing? <laughs> yes, Chris. Yes. Yes. When people you say that to you on Twitter, Chris, that is what they mean. That's, it's what, a, it's, that's yeah, what they yeah. mean. Yeah. Yeah. Russell Crowe has signed on to join the ever-growing cast of Thor: Love and Thunder. Super here for it. Yeah, he can play either Love or Thunder, and I'd be very, very happy with that. No idea who the hell he's playing, but... Uh, I feel like late career Russell Crowe this way is kind of brings a chaotic energy with him. And I, I just, I'm very excited about seeing that in, in kind of Taika's universe, Taika's Thor universe. I just, I feel like there's real potential for just some batshit shit to go down. Welcome to a new world of Love and Thunder. Little shout out as well for the In the Earth trailer. This is Ben Wheatley's new film, which um, looks nuts and horrifying. Yeah. Like, I yeah. love his early stuff. I love Kill List and A Field in England. This basically looks like a forest in England. It's it does, it? Joel Fry yeah. and Reese Shearsmith. Yes, people going into the woods and uh, they're being psychedelic, horror folky 
creepiness. I feel like they do a good job in this trailer of kind of teasing some of the nastiness of what this film is going to uh, entail while also not fully giving the game away. Um, yes. But it looks like it is going to, if, if you've seen a field in England and you remember how the last 20 minutes of that plays out, AKA mm. just crazy trippy whooshiness happening on the screen, mm-hmm. but in a really overwhelming way, it looks like it's sort of playing into that territory. Mm-hmm. And it's just nice. Like I've, I've enjoyed following where Ben Wheatley's gone over the past few years. I liked his Rebecca. Um, and it's been good to see him do things like Free Fire and Colin Burstead as well was great. It was fun to yeah. see him do kind mm-hmm. of proper comedy. But the thing that made me fall for him in the first place was his horror stuff. And yeah. so I'm really happy to see him back in, in nasty horror territory. Nasty. Speaking of people I'm happy to see back in certain territories, um, I'm sorry that was laboured, but Idina Menzel and James Marsden <gasps> are going to be back for Disenchanted, the Enchanted sequel, which is super uh, good. Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's fantastic. Because, of course, as we all remember, when uh, James Marsden's Prince Edward was jilted at the end of the last film, he ended up with Nancy and he took her back into the cartoon world and she turned into a cartoon. And like Adina Menzel already had the pipes, so that worked out super well for everybody, presumably. And uh, I can't wait to see what they're doing now. Hooray. Wow. Exciting, exciting news for everybody. Amy Adams back for that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, they've Patrick Dempsey and Amy Adams are already on board, yeah. Okay, good, 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 good. We're going to finish off the news section with some sad news. We lost two Titans last week. George Siegel and Jessica Walter both passed away last week. George Siegel, a fantastic actor. He was nominated for an Oscar, Best Supporting Actor for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. But for me, I kind of remember him as he was very, very good, very, very capable dramatic actor. But I remember him in things like California Split, which has been getting a bit of a renaissance this week on uh, on Twitter because I think it's on I think it's on either Netflix or Amazon Prime. California Split, the Robert Altman movie. If you've never seen that. It's really really good. Uh, he was in the Hot Rock with uh, Robert Redford, which is a fantastic heist movie. I think it's only available on DVD. Uh, he was in things like A Touch of Class. He was great in Flirting with Disaster, the David O. Russell movie from a few years ago. And he was really, really good in sitcoms as well, like Just Shoot Me and The Goldbergs. I've only seen a few episodes of The Goldbergs, but every single one I've, I've seen is very, very funny. And he was the, the grandfather in that. And it was still filming mm-hmm. it, actually, when he passed away uh, due to complications from heart surgery last week. Uh, so I don't know how they're going to handle his his death on the show but he was a wonderful wonderful actor mm. very very suddenly to hear the news of his passing at 87 yeah he was just one of those guys when he turned up you were always like oh you know it's that guy he's always he's, like he was him. always good and everything yeah they, I like him he's good um, I remember him I mean to my shame possibly but as a, as a young person watching the Look Who's Talking series um, he was he was a fixture in those and was was brilliant. And I remember him weirdly in in the mirror has two faces as well. So I didn't see him in maybe his best films. I feel like I'm going to need to do a bit of a deep dive into some of his old work. And he worked with Jessica Walter uh, a number of times as well. They were a I think a married couple in a sitcom called Retired at Thirty Five. He also worked with her husband a number of times, Ron Liebman, who was in the Hot Rock. He you may also know him as um, Rachel's dad on Friends. Mm. So he passed away. Ron Liebman passed away in twenty nineteen. So there's this lovely Fenn diagram of George Siegel, Ron Liebman, and, and Jessica Walter. And Jessica Walter is. 
obviously Lucille Bluth from Arrested Development and she was tremendous and the night she passed away at the age of 80 was just this wonderful outpouring of love and this happens quite a lot obviously when mm. people pass away but there felt like something really special about yeah that night on Twitter because suddenly everyone was sharing great Lucille Bluth gifts great Lucille Bluth lines like it's a banana Michael how much could it cost ten dollars <laughs> you know here's ten dollars go see a Star War I don't care for Job all that stuff she was just tremendously withering as mm. Lucille Bluth in that in that sitcom uh, all three seasons of it she <laughs> she was absolutely amazing. There was, there was a line that was going around a lot that night. And it was one of those moments where everyone on Twitter is just talking about their love for her, which was really nice to see. But um, there was a line going around that if if she couldn't make it funny, there was a problem with the script. Like if, if, Jess, if you, Jessica Walters <laughs> is saying your line and it's not funny, then you done fucked up. So yeah, I thought that was true, actually, because she's so good. Uh, particularly in the rest of development, but really in everything she I ever saw her in, and uh, yeah, she she will be much missed. I think obviously animation fans will remember her a lot from Archer as well. Which apparently I have never seen Archer, but people were saying that it's a very similar-ish role to yeah. Lucille Bluth. And apparently, yeah. when they asked when they when they were writing the script for the pilot, they were like describing the character as like Lucille Bluth. <laughs> and then apparently that got back to her somehow. So she went well can I give it a go? And they were like, are you fucking kidding me? Of course you can give it a go. And that's how she ended up being an archer as well. Um, and I will, I remember her as well for, she was terrifying in Clint Eastwood's directorial debut play Misty for me. Yeah. Uh, as a, as a woman who's, who has a sexual encounter, a liaison, if you will, with Clint's character. It, and, uh, and, uh, years before fatal attraction goes off the rails in a very, very scary way. Um, she's, really chilling in that which is which is what made it so beautiful i think years later when suddenly you see her in arrested development it's like oh no she scared the shit of me years ago and now she's really funny too what is this acting this is amazing (laughs) also apparently he he sends her a christmas card every year or sent her a christmas card every year and apparently sends really good christmas cards according to an interview with her i read yeah oh i bet he does Like, like with his dogs and stuff on them just like really super good christmas cards Oh, good old Clint. Uh, yes, indeed. So very, very sad to hear about the passing of both of those legends, George Siegel and Jessica Walter. Time now for our last guest of the show, Orlando Bloom. He's pretty famous, right? He's been in some films. Mm. He was in that. Oh, you know what? Maybe I should have asked him how Gandalf came back. He wouldn't know. In, in yeah. my two towers. Uh, does oh. he have a lot of does he have a lot of scenes with Gandalf in that movie? Yeah. Yeah. Just, just okay. So he would have yeah. known then. He would have yeah. known. Of course he would. Everybody knows. Anyway, he's pretty famous. He shot to fame as Legolas in the Lord of the Rings movies. And then, of course, was also in... He was Will Turner Mm -hmm. in the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Uh, What else was he in? Kingdom of Heaven? Kingdom of Heaven, yeah. Yeah. And then the much superior director's cut, he was in that as well. I don't know if you noticed. but But there was more of him. There was more of him. Director's cut, so much better than the theatrical cut. I I know we've said this before in the podcast, but if you have never seen the Kingdom of Heaven director's cut, then highly to it immediately uh, once you've finished this and then gone to the DVD store to pick up Soul. Then come back and watch Kingdom of Heaven, the director's cut. Um, But over the last few years, he's, you know, he's kept his hand in. He's been in stuff, Carnival Row and whatnot. But, you know, he's he's taken a bit of a step away, I'd say, from the, the big movies, the big Hollywood stuff. 
So he's been through all sorts of stuff over the last few years. And as we talked about on last week's show, he is fantastic in the small, low, 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 low budget British indie called Retaliation. And uh, I caught up with him recently over Zoom to have a good old chat. And after we spoke, he gave many other interviews. And one of those interviews led to him becoming a Twitter pinata for about four hours because of things he said that some people felt were very actually and very pretentious. This is why people should only talk to us. They should only talk to us. Um, Yes, I found him to be really affable and willing to engage about his career and about the work he put in to play Malky. Now, this is a very, very serious movie about a survivor of sexual abuse, and we do get into that in this interview. We get into some very, very difficult areas, so do be on the lookout for that. But here you go. This is me talking to Orlando Bloom about retaliation, life after Lord of the Rings, and a lot more besides. Enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by the star of Retaliation, Mr. Orlando Bloom. How are you, sir? Very well, sir. Thank you very much for having me on. Oh, not a problem. Thanks for doing it. Uh, so this is retaliation, of course, but it's a bit of a slow burn in a way, because when you started this movie, it was a while ago, and it was called mm. Romans back then as well. So now you're in Correct. the publicity side of things. Mm. What are your memories of the shoot? Is this something that you're struggling to remember? Or, or, or as I suspect, is this a character, Malky? who is kind of burned into your psyche now you've, you've played him? Uh, yeah, certainly the latter. I mean, he, um, I mean, I get a sort of a PTS feeling around it, <laughs> around it when I speak about it and I can feel my, my breath quickening and just, um, just, at, at, at talking about it because it was, it was truly a very, um, powerful journey that, that we went on, um, to make a film that I think was, um, very important um, for all of those who are making it. Um, and Jeff Thompson, who's um, the writer and who is very mm, courageously and, and, and very compassionately spoken about his own um, experience with um, sexual abuse at a young age. Uh, Malky's arc, the arc, the, the journey that Malky goes on is, is and, and the arc of his character is true to Jeff's story. It felt quite like a healing in some ways. Um, um, you know, both Paul and um, Ludwig Shemazian, who brothers um, who were sort of handpicked and very well known to Jeff, um, who were the directors, I think they just did a, a really remarkable job of of presenting this this character in a very honest and kind of brutally honest way mm. um it's certainly um polarizing i think for some people but um but you know we i've sort of mentioned this a few times because it was important when i got the script and i knew sort of immediately that i wanted to do it and then that moment comes along that's in the first third of the film where um there's this intense scene of self-abuse. And mm. so I was like, oh, wow, that is really a big moment. And what is this? I was, I was grappling with what that would mean and how it, and, 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 and that that happens. And I spoke to an organization called one in six, because that's the statistics of many being abused. And they were like, please make this movie and, you know, please 
go into it courageously and you know kind of thing and because even if it doesn't see the light of day will it'll certainly be a great movie for our um for the organization to be able to play to men who would really who have i think you know there are so many unhealed humans in the world when you and and then when you think about what the process of abuse does to a young mind and then how that manifests and plays out in the man um in this case malky which we see through that film mm. and uh, it's it's interesting you brought up that sequence as well there um because in pretty much every review I've read of the movie, they zero in on that moment. And I can see why they do as well. But there are a couple of moments later on, without going too deep into spoiler territory, that absolutely shocked me in a way, in, in terms of how vulnerable you were allowing yourself to be as an actor. There is a, a moment of, of real self-harm for Malky, and there's an astonishing one-shot scene in a confessional booth that mm. I imagine must have been A, one of the most difficult days of your acting career to date, but also B, maybe strangely in a way, one of the most rewarding? Yeah. You know, thanks for, 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 for bringing those moments up. They, um, they were, it was, it, yeah, that, I remember what that <clears throat> was done. Jeff came to set on a few occasions and he was actually there for all of those moments, three or four of those moments, for, for the boat, all three of those moments mm. and one, one other thing, but he was, um, but yeah, I, the, the confessional, I remember being in that booth and I, so I, I think like the first take, it was almost, it was, it was, um, really, um, I think it was just, it was so on the surface. It was towards the end of filming we weren't, we didn't shoot the movie um, consecutively. We weren't in, you know, mm. we're able to do it that way, but, but this, this did happen towards the end. And, and I was so um, on the surface by this point, I, I'd sort of lived through, I'd been kind of carrying um, the, the destroyed nature of Malky's thinking and the, the anger and the jealousy and the, 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 the ferocious jealousy and, and, and pain that, and torment that, I was on in the in the character and in the words, and um, so by that moment I was just like ready to to as Malky does let go of this trauma that I felt you know the character had been carrying, and in some ways when you're when you choose to take on a role, you know you you assume some of these characteristics. That's what it just does. You know, it's not just by the numbers and for this particularly mm. it was it was that moment and so it just um there were some explosive moments there was a bit of ad-libbing that happened but essentially we kept on point and it was yeah and then i remember them saying i said well we're going to shoot the priest now like no we're not going to shoot the priest i was like what i was like no we're just going to hold on you and i was like and i suddenly thought oh <laughs> well i think i'd pretty much I don't think I stepped out of that for a minute, but I hope, you know, I suddenly, I was like, I was, I there, how much, you know, I knew I was, I was sort of like, I was so in it. I was not in it. If you know what I mean? I was yeah. in it. I wasn't, I was not almost cause it was, um, and it, and also that's credit to Jeff and the way that he writes it was sort of, there's a, there was a, there was very much, 
there's a repetitiveness, there's a rhythm, there's a way that he kind of pushes you forward in some ways. And we just, you know, I just, yeah, felt that. Have you had experiences like that before in, in your career where everything almost melts away and you melt into the character and it, it, you become one with them? Yeah, I mean, look, I think when you're on stage, you kind of, if you get, you know, a, a, a Shakespearean monologue will certainly take you into that space. And, you know, I did this play soon after I played Malky and I did Killer Joe and there are moments there, you know, where you kind of, yeah. Yeah you have these sort of really powerful yeah, sensations of, um, of of presence. And yeah, I mean, I think as soon as action's called, I'm normally trying to be in that zone, you know, there's not, there isn't a thing of like not being. So it's for me, but it, it, but equally, you know, I would say that it was sort of what was required for Malky. And there wasn't a way around that. And I was um, really up for that. I kind of wanted to leave it all on the field, as it were, you know, that kind of, you know, like just ring it out and just be and, and leave it there and kind of walk away and feel that I managed to do that. So, I, you know, I, I, there wasn't much more that I could have. I didn't feel I could do much more for that. But which is and so it's great, you know. I'm, I'm so grateful to be talking about it because mm. because honestly, I wasn't even sure if the movie was going to find uh, an audience or you know, I'd ever be talking about it with anyone, you know. Especially Empire, one of my favourite magazines. But you know, it's like it's um, yeah, well, it's years, you, man. You I mean, old I'm, flatterer, I'm, you old flatterer, you. <laughs> no, I've I've, I've I, I used to have Empire sent out to New Zealand, bro, when I was on the ring. So it was one of my favourite mags. So um. So yeah, it's it's um it's nice to be able to talk about it because COVID has given it a chance to kind of yeah. come out and be seen. That's yeah. that feels you know like a blessing. Because you you said there in your conversations with with one and six that you know they were saying even if this doesn't come out, and it seems crazy that this movie was on the on the shelf for a while, but it was. You shot this, you shot it pretty much five years ago. Yeah. It it was completed, I believe, in twenty seventeen. You must have thought that was that was it. It was going to be one of those movies that you'd you'd made low budget indie. You knew that going into yeah. it, but even so, that, that was like must, a million pounds or something. Christ, yeah. yeah, that must be really tough, tough to sort of to compartmentalize and to and to deal with. There were so many complications getting the film made. Firstly, mm. it was made for like a, a very low budget, but then you know getting it out into the world. You know, it is lightning in a bottle getting these things done, and they're always you know many reasons for that but in a way um uh you know it felt like the movie was sort of like a healing for jeff and for you know and sort of for everyone involved and and in a way for me and for me to 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 sort of you know and so in some way in my mind some you know i was like well if that's one of the best moves I've ever made and it never gets seen, that would just be about right. <laughs> Sums it up. You know what I mean? It's like, that's the, that's the universe giving me a right, like, you know what I mean? Like laughing at me in some way, you know what I mean? Like, like, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah. you did it and that's, and you did it, but you did it for you. You did it for the, for the movie. It wasn't about, because if you think that, you know, coming from couple of the biggest trilogies and being so visible in all these huge movies that came after that and in the middle of that, you know, and having kind of been so visible, you know, it's sort of, 
I sort of, you know, I, I was very aware that I hadn't been a part of of a, of, of 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 a British film yeah. uh, industry, in not by choice but by the nature of what happened to my career in life, and and then having a child and being in America. But and I really wanted to come home and do that, so I did that. You know, because I really loved the British film industry. I love I love all the movies I see. Um, coming out and and when I watch them I feel you know heartened by it so um, I feel very British you know in my in my outlook um, mm-hmm. even though I've been away for many many years now and some probably almost half my life so so it was um, it was a real it was a real sort of like uh, it was a it was a decision and it was a you know to do so I'm just uh, yeah I mean mm-hmm. I think I feel I just feel grateful that it's it's but I'm talking about it now mm. and because it's, because it's finding an audience and, you know, and, uh, and I know that that's important for the men who've experienced this. Cause I think, mm. um, I think that we've done that justice. We've shown, yeah. we've, we've, we've sort of, and I think when you walk around London or you walk around any great big city and you see people and they're just talking to a lamppost or they're screaming at the heavens or, and you just go, oh, who's that? You know, people can be so judgmental. I'm like, oh, having worked on Malky, I'm like, oh man, what what's the trauma? You know, and how and and was it? You know what I mean? And what the, what depth of trauma has created the psyche that leads to that? Because Malky, without um, you know, going on a path of forgiveness, is that man who's gonna you know who's gonna gonna come unraveled yeah. and find yeah. himself in the streets and potentially killing somebody or drug abuse or whatever, or just into it. So, so to me, there was a lot, you know, there was a lot of layers to it. And I always go for that, like the, as, 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 as deep as those layers will go, I want to keep sort of mining them until we land on them, you know? So you, as you mentioned there, you have these two distinct halves of your career. You have the early days where, you know, Lord of the Rings right. propels you, into pirates and kingdom of heaven and uh and i'm very much uh kingdom of heaven director's cut uh massive i'm very much oh, in that, thanks, in that. Man. yeah that was <laughs> very much like wish that was the movie that had come out but <laughs> <clears throat> i appreciate you saying that because it was yeah oh it's a great movie yeah yeah i think really would even today talk about how great he, he felt about kingdom of heaven and that i just remember doing press for kingdom of heaven and it being like the movie feels truncated. What happened? Well, you know, there was a real kind of like, because it was, you know, the, the, the theatrical had been edited so that you get more than one, you know, five, more than four or five screenings, I guess. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. But anyway, it was, again, you know, look, the director's cut, if people find it, it's definitely the one. And I think, yeah, I'm glad I got to do that too. So absolutely. So you have the, you have that that half of your career as well, where, where, where yeah. these big movies and, you know, were you, were you being pressured post Lord Ring, did you feel pressure? Were you being pushed yeah. into the big movies and eventually you decided to do smaller things like this? It wasn't, I think, like, I remember Troy, I didn't, I wasn't like, I wasn't in love with playing, the idea of playing Paris. And I remember thinking I, I was like, I was like pushing back on that. But I was, I got quite a lot of, um, um, of, because I was like, oh, he's got to grovel at the feet of his brother. What am I, how am I going to? And I remember that, that I think somebody said, well, that will be the moment that will make it for you for the character you know <laughs> like are you because i wasn't really i didn't really <laughs> want to go into that but 
Not pushing, no. I mean, look, I wouldn't. It was what it was. This it was. It it truly was this remarkable ride that I was on. Yeah. Where there, I mean, I was, you know, I mean, I auditioned and screen tested for Ridley. I think two or three times. Screen tested certainly once, and with all the armor and the blood and the makeup and the whole thing. And mm. and I'd had like one night to prep, rehearse, <laughs> learning the lines and stuff, which was you know. And I remember doing that in my. In, my, in the back of, uh, I was I was in the back of my cousin's house in LA, and my girlfriend Kate Bosworth at the time running lines with me, and it was like, okay, we've got to get this, I've got to get this right, you know. I just come back from Mexico playing Paris, and I was in Troy, and I was like, I've got to do this like much more like heroic sword swinging guy. I know I'm getting sword swinging movies, but and it was like the juggernaut of those movies, yeah, and, yeah. I, and that was the time that that was the, you know. It's like this has been the, the this era has now we're we're in this Marvel era right the superhero movies of what what have been taken over for right you know but like at that in my window of of of, of time where I was you know under the spotlight so much and working consistently like that was that was the what was happening and I was mm. the kid who was getting the start you know getting the opportunities but it wasn't like they. It wasn't like they just fell in my lap. I mean, I auditioned, I think I auditioned six times for, for Elizabeth Town with Cameron Co. at least or more. Had wow. to really, you know, Cameron really was, you know, and then he was concerned that, you know, and I think he cast, actually, I even Ashton was, Ashton Kutcher was cast and then that didn't work for whatever reason and I was called back in. So it wasn't like, you know, I did a movie, um, with Frankie Flowers in the Cayman Islands, which was a small movie that I did just before I played a character called Shy and um, and it was a movie called Haven. And that was mm. that was sort of me trying, but that was it was just there wasn't enough hours in the day. I mean, honestly, I was I was going from one giant movie to a press conference. One giant movie to a press conference. And when I think about that now and reflect on on how I would cope with that yeah. now. I'd be like, I can't do that. I'll be burnt. I can't, I don't have it. I can't, I, I can't, how am I? And I, and if I reflect on, you know, so like in a way I was just so bamboozled because I was great on set. It was like, I could, I could, but, but when you're then going to publish, you know, to talk about yourself in the movie and then the endless questions about, you know, all the different things that are up for grabs when you're so visible, mm -hmm. I mean, I look at some of the stuff, I don't anymore, but at one point I remember somehow something coming across my screen and it being an old vision, an old clip of me speaking about a movie or something. And I was like, wow, I don't know who that person is, but they are not present. They are not there. They are just like, they are just a robot talking, you know, they're yeah. just selling a movie. And I mean, listen, nothing but gratitude for the whole thing. Um, but like, I was, I definitely was spinning, you know, I don't think, you know, I don't think it's, it's, I look around and there are dead bodies in my peers. There are, there are people who've yeah. just hung it up as well. There's, yeah. there's people who I came up with who have just gone, nah, see you later. So the fact that I'm still here, I give myself props for that every now and again, <laughs> um, because I think it is, you know, about showing up every day and showing up in your life and showing up in every way that you can. And I'm definitely a work in progress, but, you know, getting to play Malky, who was such a complex and, and, and vulnerable man, 
was really a gift. And, you know, so I'm, I'm glad. I think that's, yeah, when you reflect on this time that we've, you know, that we've all been given mm. to reflect, if there's nothing more we can do, we can certainly do that. And you think about the world we're living in today, I guess, you know, I, I, I now feel more inclined to um, be a part of films and, 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 hope, and hope to play characters that really do obviously entertain because we're storytellers and that's what we do. You know, let's not get, you know, we're not, we're not, you know, changing, we're not saving lives, but like I do, I do always think now more like, well, is this, is this character, you know, can I, is there something about this character that can, you know, have an impact in a, in, in, in a, in a positive way or this movie or this, you know, what I'm always looking for that. Yeah, yeah. This may surprise you, Orlando, but you and I are the uh, the same age. One of us looks better on it. Uh, <laughs> <I'm just> <laughs> but uh, just in, in that's awesome, man. Are you seventy seven. <laughs> I am seventy seven. Uh, in the interest of making us both feel old, it's twenty years this year since Fellowship came out. And uh, oh, are yeah. you getting ready? We we have just put. I don't know whether you've seen the, the most recent issue of Empire. We just uh, we put uh, Elijah and Daniel Radcliffe on the cover because it's the yeah, twentieth yeah. anniversary of Harry Potter as well. That's cool. Yeah. My God! And uh, sorry, are you getting ready? Are you in the sort of anniversary celebratory? I know it's not until later in the year, but are you in that time that there, mind frame? There has been a flurry of emails between um, the cast of Lord of the Rings and stuff, and there was some like thinking and excited thoughts about how we could all, you know, somehow regroup and gather and break bread. And I don't know that that's um, feasible. Obviously, Pete is our uh, commander in chief, as it were. And uh, as, 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 you know, the genius that he is, mm -hmm. um, his schedule is not, you know, is not necessarily, you know, is, 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 is more uh, maybe less flexible than some. <laughs> so we, we just have to, we just have to see, but I think there'll, I think, I think there'll be a time. There'll be a time for us all, you know. Hopefully, um, yeah. I mean, I'll, you know, my son's ten, and he's he he certainly um, he loves watching the movies, so that's great. Um, that's awesome. And yeah, I mean, I would love to see the boys and Vigo. Oh. You know, I'd love to see all of them. And we, yeah, we we were trying. We've been trying. It's difficult because we're also in a pandemic. So you know, yeah. how do we? How do we do that? But <clears throat> maybe, maybe for the next, the next big number, like, I don't know, <laughs> maybe for the next big number, 25 years. Or 25. Something. Maybe there'll be another window where we can, because it would be great to see everybody, you know, and it's like a school reunion almost or something. Yeah. You know? Yeah. We did do that thing with Josh Gad that was very fun, actually. Yeah. yeah Reunited Apart was very cool. Yeah. Well, listen, on yeah. that note, I'm going to let you go. Uh, but it's been, it's been a <sighs> Thanks, pleasure. Man. Stay safe out there. Yeah, man. Thanks, Cheers. man. Cheers, take care. Bye bye. Bye. Okay, so that was Orlando Bloom. And as we discussed last week, Retaliation is out right now on VOD, and we thought it was fantastic. We would give it four stars. Would we give any of the movies up for discussion this week four stars? Yes. And let's start with a movie that we'd give four stars plus one to, which is Minari. Now, Minari is one of the Oscar contenders this year. It's been nominated for six Academy Awards. It is going to get one of those staggered releases uh, so it's out this week on uh, VOD, and I think as part of Curzon Home Cinema. It's also being screened as part of a Cinema at Home program. In a couple of weeks' time, it's going to be available at drive-ins, and then in May, it's going to be available in cinemas for people to see. Hopefully, fingers crossed, if cinemas reopen in May. But yes, it is out this week. Hell's Bells. Yeah. 
Tell me about Minari. Apologies for the baby crying nearby. I swear it's nothing to do with me. Right, so this is the story of the Yi family uh, who have been living in California um, for a decade after uh, immigrating from Korea and have now moved to Arkansas. So Jacob, who's played by Stephen Yun, has moved the family across the country from California to buy this plot of land in Arkansas because he has this dream of growing Korean fruit and vegetables, basically. So he, he thinks there's going to be a market for these. They can capitalize. They can get in there on the ground floor. But in the meantime, obviously, it's going to be incredibly hard work to get this land to produce the kind of vegetables that they need to, mm -hmm. to kind of support the family. They're living in a trailer. They haven't got a lot of space. Uh, his mother-in-law, um, who's played by Yoo Jong Yeon, um, comes to, to live with them and help look after the kids, but she also has her own health problems. And it's just, it's a family drama, basically. So that this tiny mm -hmm. little nuclear family is under pressure, obviously, because they've got all this pressure to set up, start things working. They're, they're also trying to assimilate into a society where they are in not just a minority, but a very tiny minority, you know, as opposed to California, which had a Korean community. And it's really about about all their struggles. The, the the marriage is the marriage going to survive? How will the granny settle in? You know, how are the two kids going to cope? Particularly the younger kid David, who's played by Alan S. Kim, who you may well have seen on award shows, being the most adorable child in the world. Um, mm -hmm. It's just it's it's really really a beautifully told, you know, both very specific and very very universal story of a family trying to you know, do their best to make a home for themselves and find their way in the world. And I just think it's gorgeous. I just, you know, I was completely wrapped up in it every second. I was like terrified that, you know, somebody was going to be nasty to David at, at you know, after church at sort of on Sunday. And I was worried about the family finances and I was worried about granny fitting. I just got completely sucked into it. And it's because it's so immersive and so real and so lived in because it is kind of semi-autobiographical uh, for Lee Isaac Chung, the director. And I just think it's beautifully, beautifully done. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I don't really have any complaints. It, it's not a big film. You know, look, I'm going to be honest with you, no giant monkeys hit any dinosaurs in this movie. So, like, yeah, I'm not saying it's... One star then for Minari. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I just think it's... It's such an incredible use of cinema to just bring you completely into someone else's life and, and you know, keep you there. And it, it, shot, it looks like a dream. It's, it's shot, they shot it in the summer. It's beautiful blue skies and green fields. And, and, and yet you still have this sense of the tension and the worry that the parents are going through as they try and make this new life for themselves. I thought it was terrific. Absolutely terrific. It's one of the movies uh, out this week that I, <laughs> I'm kind of, kicking myself that I saw on a computer screen rather than the biggest screen possible. Guess what the other one was, folks. <laughs> if you can have a wild guess what the other one was. And I will go back and see this. My wife hasn't seen it yet and I was telling her about yeah. it and she was like, I'd love to see it. And I was like, you know what? May 17th. May 17th. Uh, we'll go and see this on the biggest screen available. Hopefully that's at a cinema rather than our front room. Terrific, terrific film. Really affecting and enchanting and moving and all the good stuff. We gave this one, you may not be surprised to know, five stars. So five stars then for Minari. Spoiler alert, we did not give Godzilla vs. Kong five stars. What? We gave it two stars. But spoiler alert, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, a couple of us here think that might have been harsh. Mm -hmm. Ben. Yeah, and I have form with harshness and the MonsterVerse <laughs> movies. I do, don't you? You do. You do. 
I you do. were the kaiju who took down Godzilla, King of the Monsters, you <laughs> heathen. I, oh, I just, that film, oh, I, I still stand by my one-star review of that film. And yet I really liked Godzilla vs. Kong. I had so much fun with this film. It is, Helen was talking about Minari being grounded and realistic and beautiful and nuanced. <laughs> Godzilla vs. Kong is, is every single one of those things. No, it's, it's none of those things. It is beautiful I put, this, I put the subtitles on. At one point, Godzilla actually says in the subtitles, fuck nuance as he kicks over a building. <laughs> And the subtext of that I thought was really interesting. Um, (laughs) (laughs) He actually takes a he takes a hundred foot dump in subtext as well. (laughs) Yeah, this is the fourth film in the MonsterVerse. It began so long ago with the Gareth Edwards Godzilla, and how how far this series has changed since that point is kind of amusing to me. That it started in this (laughs) Nolan esque, like what if we did a really gritty, grounded, serious, um, vaguely Mm. Spielbergian, yeah, quite kind of Batman Begins ish Godzilla story, and now. Uh, what's hard is the stuff that I really love about this film is all the stuff in the third act that we can't talk about but it basically just gets kind of crazier and crazier as it goes along and we were messaging on our whatsapp group weren't we because completely get it John gave this two stars he had a lot of issues with it and just didn't work for him but I was kind of halfway through and it has already given you at that point a punch up between Godzilla and Kong which for me was better than anything especially in Godzilla King of the Monsters where it had these massive mm. monster fights but I like for me those sequences that you couldn't tell what was going on there was no there was mm. nothing dynamic yeah, about any here. of those there's yeah. a lot more yeah, clarity a lot clarity. of these yeah. fights yeah. take place either in daylight or in kind of there's a like a nighttime Hong Kong fight that is um, obviously yeah in the nighttime, but it's lots of neon lighting and it has this really cool aesthetic to it. You have this kind of, yeah, punch up in the first half. And I was messaging you guys like, I, this is really fun so far. And every few minutes after that, it got wackier and wackier. And every time it got wackier, I kind of fell a little bit more head over heels for it. Um, it's, it is, it has a lot of the problems that the other MonsterVerse films have in that, yes, there are still quite a lot of humans that don't really have much to do. For me, nowhere near as badly done as the ones in King of the Monsters. It is a bit more streamlined from there, but you still have a lot of these human characters who just none of them really make an impact. You've got Brian Tyree mm. Henry playing this like conspiracy theorist podcaster, and that is just like, ah, oh, it's a shame to see someone so cool doing this role yeah. that's just like, oh man, why are you stuck in this role? Same a bit for Julian Dennison. I just want the best things for him always. Oh, nothing but the best, yeah. I don't think this is one of his best projects not in terms of his performance but just like he, there's nothing he character him and millie bobby brown who was in godzilla king the monsters are sort of off mm. on this kind of road trip mm. but I, I don't know none of that stuff works but for me the monster stuff in this it feels huge and it feels it's got a sense of gravity to it but it's also got a massive sense of fun to it and I thought the action sequences were really exciting, um, had that real heft to it. I think the score for this is great. You get like a, a different theme for Godzilla and one for Kong, and the Godzilla one's very like, wah, 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 wah. and then the Kong ones are sort of slightly more heroic, kind of sprightlier theme. And the way these two kind of themes play off each other yeah. and play into the film, I think is really well done. And mm. it's just a shame that we're watching this. Like, I managed to get it through my TV in the end. And yeah. and yeah. that is better than nothing. But I was watching it the whole time thinking, I want to be seeing this on a massive helps. IMAX with yeah. a big old Tango Ice Blast and a sugar crash. 
imminent but not quite ha- <laughs> happening yeah. yet you know yeah i i do think that i mean there, there may be a part of us that is loving this as much as we are and uh, loving with reservations loving while acknowledging it's stupid three, three star loving three star loving um <laughs> which sounds like a really bad rock album um but <laughs> There may be an element of us loving this as much as we do because we're just so starved of, you know, explosions and giant monsters mm. punching other giant monsters. And it genuinely, you know, what the world needs right now is love, sweet love, yes, but also ridiculousness and and spectacle and stupidity because, you know, we've had a lot of very great serious dramas over the last year. We've had a lot of small-scale great horror. We've had a lot of interesting TV stuff and, you know, but we we haven't had this kind of big IMAX spectacle and um, and I've really missed it and it may be affecting my judgment, but I had a blast watching this while having many reservations about, yes, all the human characters are completely disposable and pointless, and I wish they weren't because that is an, a hell of a cast to be wasting. See, I I do think we have been starved of this stuff, but but for me, it's not just that. I think Adam Wingard as a filmmaker, what I really like, especially about his early stuff, you think of Your Next and The Guest, mm. like he really gets genre stuff. And he, for me, the joy of those films is that he knows those genres inside out, and he knows when to play into them and when to subvert them and kind of how to be playful with them. Yeah, yeah, that's and for fair. me, yeah. um, I, I could feel that coming through here with the monstery stuff that he really understood how to approach that and how to have fun with it and which bits needed to be serious and which bits needed to be kind of thrilling and threatening. And I think he played that stuff really nicely. And it... I just think, yeah, the monster stuff in this is so fun. Like, the reason that I really like Kong Skull Island is that it lets those all those beasties loose and it has that slightly kind of um it has a real adventure tone to it and this mm. has the same thing it doesn't make a lick of sense but it has that kind of rollicking adventure tone that if you just lean into it and embrace the silliness and the weirdness and the wackiness there's a lot of fun to be had in it i think while at the same oh, yeah, time great. acknowledging that i understand why john gave this two stars but yeah, it is that three star three star love. It's like I can acknowledge that this is by no means a perfect film. Did I have an absolutely great time watching it and get even more into it with every passing minute? A hundred percent. Yeah, I hope that we're not as easy a lay as we haven't seen some bright lights and exploding buildings on the screen for a while. Oh, who am I kidding? That's exactly why I give this five stars. <laughs> My relationship with this series of films is very interesting um, because I kind of feel that I wasn't entirely on board with Gareth Edwards' Godzilla, although I think what he did with scale and the sense of scale and sense of size and how the the kaiju and the the monsters dwarf humans, he's done that better than any director since. Mm. Skull Island, I didn't like at all. I've got to try. I'm going to try and revisit each of these movies ahead of our spoiler special for this, because yeah, I kind of want to get a sense of how the the madness progresses. Skull Island, I didn't really like at all, if I'm honest. And I had a bit of a blast with the King of the Monsters, especially you know Ben did great work lowering my expectations, <laughs> and then I saw it on the biggest screen possible with you know lovely reclining seats, and I was just like, you know what? We paid 19 quid a pop for these seats. Where I'm going to enjoy the hell out of this film. And I got my 19 pounds worth. Uh, <laughs> this movie, yeah, again, I kind of went into it with low expectations. I'm not a huge Godzilla fan. I'm not a huge Kong fan. I'm, I don't have the affection for these characters that a lot of people do. Clearly, a lot of people do. 
but this weren't worth me an awful lot. I think there are huge flaws. The human characters don't work. You could say that's just a minor thing with these movies, but the fact is the special effects budgets mean that you can only spend a certain amount of time with Godzilla and with Kong. So therefore, by default, you have to spend a lot of time with humans. And there are little hints that there is a more interesting approach to the human characters that maybe didn't make the final cut. The Alexander yeah. the Alexander Skarsgård character is pretty bland, but I get the sense that he wasn't meant to be, and that perhaps his more idiosyncratic side was cut or on the cutting room floor or modified in some way. Uh, because otherwise you're looking at this movie going, why have you got Alexander Skarsgård doing all the hero stuff when you have a perfectly good Kyle Chandler just standing there I mean, doing nothing? I mean, come I mean, on. If you can put Coach Taylor in your movie, have more Coach Taylor <laughs> yeah. in your movie. Clear eyes, full heart can beat giant monsters. Like, that's just science. Like, I don't understand why he wasn't given more to do, but hey. Yeah. Uh, but you know, hey ho, we'll get into that in the spoiler special. But otherwise, I had a good time. Big monsters punching each other and Yay. kicking the shit out of buildings and subtext and nuance. Thank you very much indeed. Three stars for this for me, but two stars from Empire Magazine. So listen, when this opens in the biggest screen possible, go and see it. I'm a hundred percent seeing this again when cinemas <laughs> reopen. <laughs> me too. Like, let's go see it. Let's all go see it. We'll all hold hands. Um, do we have to? Did I make it weird? I made it weird. You made it weird. It, it. Uh, do you know what? Honestly, the I, I was like, do you know what? It, it wasn't the weirdness. It was pu still purely the COVIDness. <laughs> I was like, once, once that, once we're all fully jabbed and everything's completely fine. Do you know what, Chris? I will hold your hand as long as my oh. other hand is holding a Tangle okay. Ice Blast. That is yes. the non-negotiable. Time now to talk about the Mauritanian. Hell's Bells. Yes, so this is another film that's been uh, an awards botherer, um, although I would put it on a slightly lower level personally than uh, Minari. Um, this is uh, based on a true story, uh, quite closely based, um, and it is the story of uh, one of the inmates at Guantanamo Bay, one of the people detained without trial by the US government for years in the wake of 9-11. Um, so uh, Mohamedou is our, our hero, is possibly the wrong word, but he's played by Tahar Rahim, but our central figure. Um, and he's just being held without trial. Um, and until some US lawyers take an interest in his case, Jodie Foster's Nancy Hollander and Shailene Woodley's Terry Duncan start trying to basically make the case for habeas corpus for the rights he has to be charged or released already. Um, mm -hmm. Benedict Cumberbatch is the uh, US government lawyer who is supposed to basically make the case for the government that this guy needs to be detained. And he finds himself questioning whether that's really the case or not. So yeah. it's kind of an interesting dynamic in terms of the legal aspects of the case. Um, as you'd expect, Kevin MacDonald with his background brings a real eye for detail and for reality and nuance and all those things that Godzilla left behind into the film. And it is an incredible performance from Tahar Rahim. Like, I don't feel like enough English speakers know him. You know, if people didn't see Unprofit, then they maybe don't, but like, he's incredible, mm -hmm. absolutely incredible here. He absolutely deserves to be in the awards conversation. For me, he was better than the film. So I felt like a lot of the rest of the film was a little bit injustice by numbers uh, in a way that we've seen in a number of movies already. This this kind of this very issue was discussed in the report, for example. Uh, we have seen the horrific uh, results of US torture of de detainees uh, in other films before. And so 
well, maybe maybe I've been paying more attention to some of those documentaries than than everybody has, but like mm, it, mm. these things are out there. So I didn't find it quite as impactful as I maybe wanted to, but I do think it deserves to be in that conversation, really, just for Tahar Rahim and for this extraordinary story of this guy who was imprisoned for well over a decade um, by the U.S. government yeah. without charge and without trial. Two stars then for the Mauritanian, and we're going to finish off uh, this week talking about a movie that is on the Netflix. We're going to be talking, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's out this week as well. We're going to be talking about it next week. So the likes of the new Doug Lyman, Tom Holland, Daisy Ridley movie, Chaos Walking. We're going to be reviewing that next week. Antebellum, which is going to be on Sky, uh, the Janelle Monet thriller. That's going to be discussed next week as well. But we are going to be talking about Bad Trip. Ben, can you describe Bad Trip? Uh, It's basically Jackass meets a road movie in that it is a (laughs) series of uh, pranks playing out in real life in front of real people uh, led by Eric Andre and Lil Rel Howery. And they've kind of constructed a narrative in which they are buddies taking a road trip in order for Eric Andre's character, Chris, to go and meet uh, his high school crush who he's reacquainted with. She lives in New York. They decide to take a road trip to New York. The bad news is they have stolen Lil Rel Howery's character, uh, Bud, his sister's car. His sister is Tiffany Haddish, who has just escaped from prison and has a bright pink <laughs> car that says bad bitch on the back of it. <laughs> and uh, so they're driving this car up to New York. She's hot on their trail. Along the way, various hijinks happen in front of unsuspecting members of the public and it i mean that is what it is it is a series of pranks with a loose narrative around it and for the most part no one's going to claim that this is a masterpiece and it doesn't have that like satirical edge really of something like borat where you're like oh it's it's pranks and it's shocking but it's also trying to say something about america it doesn't have that stuff happening underneath it The thing that I liked about it is that, especially early on, it's quite a bit sweeter than Borat. Obviously, a lot of the Borat stuff is really, like, trying to shock you and to provoke a sort of shocking reaction. This one is much sillier, and there are goofier moments that I really enjoy. For me, there's there are there are some pranks in the latter half that are a bit more extreme that did make me feel uncomfortable, as I think you're supposed to to feel. Um, But there are some really fun ones. And yeah, it's just... Eric Andre is really funny. Lil Rel Howery is really funny. You'll have seen him in Get Out. He is the mm. TSA guy. And I will say mm. that some of the pranks definitely land better than others. Some of them feel quite small. Some of them don't get that big reactions and they're still in the film anyway because they need to kind of keep this narrative going. But some of them are really funny. There is one in a smoothie shop <laughs> that is just great because it's like they pile these different situations on top of each other. They layer it in a way that you think you've seen what the gag is. And then there's an extra gag on top of it that just absolutely cracked me up. It made me laugh a lot. It's wildly, wildly uneven. And there are huge, huge parts of it that, that don't work, but nothing is stuff doesn't work, but it's not terrible. It's not unfunny. It's just, you're just kind of going, Oh, this is, this is all right. This is okay. Uh, you know, this is just a placeholder to get me to the next mm. great big wild OTT setup or shock. And when it does hit, it's really, really funny. I, you know, I watched it with my wife. We watched, we were just flicking through Netflix the other night. I was like, oh, wow, Bad Trip has appeared on Netflix. I sit by magic. Let's watch that. It's 86 minutes long. Yeah, I can't stress that enough. It's 86 minutes long and on Netflix. Like, you have nothing to lose if you yeah. like this kind of silly prank comedy. 
I'm increasingly aware of the irony of me praising sub 90 minute running times on a podcast that is frequently <laughs> two hours and above. So maybe it's time to bring this bad boy to an end. Uh, I'd say, Ben, we're probably both in the three-star camp as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eric Andre versus Taste. Um, <laughs> which was and, very, and very funny Let me times. tell you, Taste does not win. Taste does not win. Taste <laughs> is brutalized in this movie. Uh, so I'd go three stars for Bad Trip. And on that note, that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun where we'll be joined by Hi. newly minted Oscar nominee Riz Ahmed and Ooh. Darius Martyr. They are the star and director, respectively, of the wonderful Sound of Metal. And uh, we'll also be joined, I believe, by Doug Lyman. I know I may have promised that a couple of times in the in the past, but I, I, he will be a guest on one of these podcasts sooner rather than later. That I swear to you. But until then, until we meet again, until that auspicious occasion. It is goodbye from Squadcast name. Let them fight Ben Travis. Bye. It is goodbye from Chaos Sitting. Helen O'Hara, explain yourself. Well, I thought we were going to review Chaos Walking this week because we kind of went back and forth on which films we were going to split up between this week and next week. And Mm. I'm sitting down, not walking. So there you go. That was it. (laughs) That's as far as my thought process went. What could be more chaotic than referring to a film (laughs) we didn't discuss? In your Squadcast username. There you go. And it's goodbye from me, Mitch Easter. Mitch Easter, by the way, in case you don't know, is the co-producer of R.E.M.'s first two albums. So, happy Easter. I do it every year. I post a picture of him looking vaguely happy. I go, happy Easter. And three people get it. So I figure if I tell you now, when I put this picture up on Sunday, five of you will like it. I'll feel some way validated. Anyway... (laughs) It's goodbye from me. Hope you get all the Easter eggs that you could possibly want and eat. Do not forget my grand method for smashing them. Just break them with your hands. I don't understand. You've got opposable thumbs, man. Yes, and the opposable thumbs thumbs. grip the egg and then you release the opposable thumbs and the egg drops. I mean, even if it's in one piece instead of the correct two halves, like you just poke it and then it... I just, I don't understand. Why Why would you do? Why would you do that? Why would you do that? Anyway... It is goodbye from me. I'm off to prepare for my grand audition to play the young Luke Skywalker. Wiggity bee! Wiggity bee! Wiggity bee! Nailed it. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye. Bye.